0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the A16Z podcast. I'm Amelia. And this week, we're sharing two one-on-one conversations with Andreessen Horowitz co-founders Mark and Ben, covering everything from company building to tech trends and culture. These originally took place as live chats on social audio app Clubhouse, where Ben and Mark now host weekly one-on-ones, the name partly inspired by a newspaper column Andy Grove did in the 80s, and these conversations take place every Monday at 7 p.m. Pacific time. You can find these and other conversations at our separate new feed, A16Z Live. But we're sharing these first two episodes here, nearly three hours worth, where Ben and Mark cover everything from advice for founders, the evolving ways we work together remotely during the pandemic, and how to create great co founder relationships to the future of major tech trends like decentralization, crypto voice, video, and text, and much more. So
1: first of all, thank you, everybody, for joining um, the inaugural tryout uh, of a new show that my partner Ben and I are considering uh, putting on on a regular basis if it goes well. Um, It's called (laughs) One on One with A and Z. Um, It's actually inspired by um, our kind of uh, hero uh, of Silicon Valley and uh, being a CEO and running companies and creating technology, Andy Grove, who, in the 1980s, he had a, uh, he had some, he used the most advanced communication technology of his time in the 1980s. He had a newspaper column uh, in the San Jose Mercury News called 101 with Andy Grove. And in fact, there's a book of his columns that I, I highly recommend people buy. It might be out of print, but uh, he he would, he would take uh, take questions and, and sort of, it was a very rare opportunity for somebody to uh, ask people ask questions of somebody like him. So, you know, we're no Andy Grove, um, but you know we'll we'll, we'll do our best. Um, so we put out a call for questions on Twitter, and we got I would say an extraordinary range of very very smart questions. I would say I was I, I was I was actually uh, very impressed by the 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 depth and seriousness of the questions. Um, I would say for people who have given up on the idea that there is intelligence on the internet, um, at least these threads, <laughs> at least these threads refuted that. And so thank you everybody who submitted questions. Um, we lined up a dozen, um, that we're going to start with today. And then if this goes well, we'll continue to solicit, uh, and we'll do new questions. And then, um, the goal, uh, this is at least starting out as a, as a guest free show. And so the goal is to, um, is basically to, to, to engage in, in questions, uh, from, from, uh, from anybody who wants to ask them, uh, on Twitter. And then, um, uh, maybe we'll argue about the answers every now and then. Um so I uh will uh start uh, us right off in the deep end of the pool uh with a question from a, a Twitter user named The Network Hub um which is I would love an expansion into the wartime and peacetime CEO concepts um and then I would add to that where do you see wartime and peacetime CEOs in the industry today and so Ben maybe you could start you you wrote in your first book uh quite a yeah. bit on the topic of wartime and peacetime CEOs uh for people who haven't read it maybe you could um, basically articulate the theory of what you meant by that, and then I, I would love to know, like, where where do, where do you see these these two types operating in the in the in the uh, in the world today?
2: Yeah, so that, that, that's a great question. Um, so you know, work time CEO is uh, the, the original blog post was kind of about these two different modes of operation, and um, you know, I wrote it because actually Andy Grove was one of the inspirations for it, interestingly. But I wrote it because you know, when you read business books, um, it's always about you know. Delegating management and don't micromanage and you know, whatever you do, never publicly humiliate anybody or anything like that, right? And then you read the stories about kind of the most legendary CEOs like Steve Jobs and Andy Grove, and they were always publicly humiliating people. And you know, they oftentimes would drop down to incredibly low levels and make very, very specific decisions about things. And so I wanted to kind of articulate, you know, my interpretation of what they were doing. And it really came down to these two modes that you're in when you're a CEO, one being kind of wartime and one being peacetime. And I, I kind of wrote it to convey, you know, at the time, the feeling of what each one was and, you know, uh, you know, the peacetime CEO doesn't you know, care about the details. They let, you know, their people handle those. And I think I wrote something like, you know, a wartime CEO cares about a speck of dust on a gnat's ass if it, you know, gets in the way of the prime directive. And so that kind of feeling of being all over everything and really much more dictatorial versus more empowering and um, kind of enabling uh, was the contrast in the original post. I think the thing that... um, I missed or I didn't do a good job of explaining in the original post is why you're in one mode or another. (laughs) Um, Like what is peacetime and what is wartime? And, you know, I think that peacetime, you know, if the general direction of the company is correct and you're expanding and growing the original idea, then peacetime is really good because it harnesses, I think maximum creativity in an organization. Um, And you kind of and everybody understands you hired everybody in for a certain kind of job and a certain kind of strategy and then you train them in a certain way. And then you you really want to unleash them to do their thing. Um, But that's different when, you know, the company is in a crisis or has to change directions very quickly. And the way I would kind of describe it is, you know, if you're building the American military for the Cold War, uh, you know, you build it in a certain way with certain kind of weapons, certain kinds of strategies, certain kinds of training for military personnel. And then one day you wake up and you find that you're fighting ISIS, and everything about what you built is wrong. Um, and now you got to get your leadership from where they are to where you are, and that uh, generally requires a very different mode. And that's you know often when you go into wartime because if you let them kind of get there on their own, it's going to take too long. Uh, and you know I, I just give one quick example of this, and then you know, I I was working with a company who got, you know, very hard hit by the pandemic due to the nature of their industry, Um, but they had been a really successful kind of company growing and, and doing things. And, you know, they had some, what I would say, peacetime executives, uh, you know, very good, like a a really credible, uh, you know, head of HR and so forth. Um, But, you know, the, you know, they, they, they kind of, Uh, you know, we're having trouble with attrition and so forth and wanted to kind of give this very kind of generous re-upping of everybody's equity. And that was just like a very peacetime idea. It's kind of, you know, let's retain everybody. You know, we need them all because we're building this big thing. And, you know, we've got to compete with Google and so forth on that. But the real situation was we couldn't even afford to keep the people we had. (laughs) So what were we doing? Uh, We need a wartime mentality. No, no, no like we're not going to do that what we're going to do is we're going to find the, the you know the exact people we need and we're going to overpay them and then like if other people quit like we're going to live with that because we have a leaky boat and like we can't carry all these people sure uh and so that you know that that's kind of the difference in mentality to expand on that original thing um, if you look at today you know companies are peacetime like i think salesforce.com is clearly in peacetime they're sort of you know, for the most part, you know, expanding a major footprint, a giant kind of system of record um, lock-in type of position. And they're looking for more and more ways to enhance that and, you know, protect themselves a bit, but it's not dictated by the CEO, uh, you know, from on, you know, every move that the company is making. Um, You know, and you'd contrast that with, I think, Zuck said he was going into wartime and, you know, he's got really specific crisis on his hands with uh you know what's happened with social media and and kind of the perception of it and so forth and so he's he's clearly in wartime mode and i give that back to you mark
1: yeah how two two follow-up questions for you so one is how long can a company stay in wartime mode before it 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 breaks in some way yeah
2: no like i i think you can go for a very long time i mean i think that you know in some ways like jobs always ran apple that way and i don't think Cook does like nearly as much, although it has some remnants of it. But the, the, the CEO like has to be able to organize in a way where he, he or she can engage at a very, very fine level of detail on, you know, what ends up being like really minute decisions in some ways, you know, right down to, you know, very specific things about a product or something, because you, you, you can't afford to get anything wrong. You can't yep. afford to make a misstep. And so if you're in a mode where you can't afford to make a misstep, then that can be done. It takes a very s- specific kind of leader, which is why most CEOs can't actually run in the other mode. <laughs> if they're wartime,
1: they run in wartime. If they're peacetime, they run in peacetime. Generally, can't, can't switch modes. Yeah, well, you could you could argue that like history shows that there are two different you – know, there's both those two kinds of political leaders also, right? And so you, and you've got yeah. sort of the th- famous example of Winston Churchill – you know, who, who was, you know, not that, you know, necessarily like, you know, destined to be like prime minister and play the role that he played until, until World War II. And then sort of immediately upon the end of World War II, he was tossed right out.
2: Yeah. Cause he was just drunk at that point. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> he
1: just,
2: he couldn't, he was too bored. Like it wasn't yeah. intense enough. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. It's really hard. Um, it's really hard to find somebody you can change personalities in that sense.
1: Yeah, and then the other question, and you you brought this up, and so I'm, I'm keying off what you said is, you know, the, the, the wartime CEOs, there is this pattern, or I guess, question, is there this pattern where they do tend to humiliate people in public? Um, and when that happens, um, uh, you know, to the extent that you believe that's a pattern, like, is that basically like 100% always over the line, like they're just pushing things too far? Or are they doing it to prove a necessary point? Um, you know, should it be part of the standard toolkit? Um, how do you think about that?
2: Yeah, so I think they're good about it. It's not arbitrary. It's to drive home a really important point into the culture. Um, so, you know, if you, you know, jobs would do it to kind of just say, look, we're not good enough here. like, Whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, this is just not good enough. It's not Apple standard. And my one of my favorite examples is Andy Grove. Um, he, uh, you know, he was a, crazy about being on time. And and that made sense in Intel because Intel had to be high precision because they're making chips and everything was about chip yield and all these kinds of things. So like being on time, you know, it was part of that, part of like we don't make mistakes. We we're a highly disciplined organization. And uh so he's at a meeting and you know he's running Intel and Intel's, you know, a giant most important company in Silicon Valley. And somebody comes in late to the meeting and he looks at him and he says, all I have In this world is time, and you're wasting it. And I can't even imagine how that would make that person (laughs) feel. But I guarantee you, nobody who was in that meeting or heard about that meeting or knew anybody in that meeting was ever late to a meeting again at Intel. Um, So it's kind of a a technique for changing broad scale behavior, um, you know, with a with a very sharp message. And and look, it's a sacrifice. It's a Confucian idea. It's you know the good of the Whole is more important than the good of an individual.
1: Right. Okay. Good. Um, I'm sure this 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 will probably already generate follow up questions, which we'll certainly be happy to take for next time. But let's move to the uh, next topic, um, which is uh, very very topical, very relevant. And this is I, I paired two questions here, so I'll read them both. Wow. So, um, Amon Betruden um, asks: Are there any noti- Are there any noticeable differences you've noticed about the characteristics of successful founding teams, or let's say, you know, startups and, and, and tech companies? in a remote work from work from home world versus in person what are your portfolio companies learning uh, to do that other startups might be missing and then uh, Rosali uh Sepla says what are your thoughts about vc's investors and startup founders looking outside of silicon valley to build is it realistic is it permanent is it possible to build something big and magical in miami or houston that looks and feels as successful as what was built in san francisco and i have i have a thousand thoughts on this but ben please start <laughs> yeah, yeah i wonder if we're going <laughs> to agree um so
2: you know, it is pretty new the the work from home thing. So it's a little, I would just say the jury's still out on the one hand, on the other hand, like the productivity, like, like just look at the outputs of the startups um, in this work from home mode. It is very impressive uh, in terms of just anything, you know, like time to revenue features built this that any way you'd measure velocity of a startup, it's really hard for us to tell That they're working from home. Uh, I would just say that across the board. I do feel, and I'm not sure about this, that there used to be a bit more of an advantage to the really magnetic, hyper energetic, um, charismatic CEO when they had everybody in the office than they have now over the more low key introverted um, CEO. Like, I, I do feel like that gap closed a bit in terms of, you know, assembling the world-class team and doing all those things. I I just feel like the even more uh, nerdy CEOs have, you know, gained ground on that a bit. Hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, it it is, that is a little hard to tell. Um, You know, some of the (sighs) people are using, I would say the people who are executing the best are the ones who are you know, just really over communicating on everything, frequency of uh, all hands, really amazing onboarding ideas, how they get people oriented into the company, um, you know, and those kinds of things, you know, really aggressive use of all the tools, um, you know, not just Slack and Zoom, but every new tool that comes out, um, you know, doing all their, you know, continuing with all their events online and all these kinds of things. So, uh, just, you know, the people who are really leaning in and acting like work from home is going to last a while, I think are doing a kind of more effective job, uh, with their people than, than people who are just waiting for it to go away. Um, and then on the, well, why don't I stop there and let
1: you answer the part of the question and then we'll talk about Miami. Yeah, so absolutely. So, um, let so will say a couple of things. So one is like, I am just like completely flabbergasted, you know, as I, I know a lot of people are by this experiment that we've been running. Like if you had asked me in, you know, December of 2019, you know, what would happen if basically all tech companies sent everybody home? Um, you know, I, I would have predicted a catastrophe. Like I, I, I am just like positively shocked and enormously impressed. Um, like I, I go so far as to say, like, I don't actually know of any tech companies that have not run well through this, through, through this, through this whole process. Which is just like, which is just astonishing. Like I would have, I would have predicted disaster. Um, And it's just because, you know, we just, we, those of us who have been been a business for all, we just have like so much experience for what it means for everybody to be in the office and how valuable that is. And the idea that you're just kind of blowing that up and going to this totally new mode of operation and you're not going to have like huge negative fallout has been like incredibly surprising to me. Um, And so like (laughs) my views on like what's possible now have like really broadened, uh, really broadened out and expanded. You know, to, to, to the point where I might get carried away on this topic, but, like, I, I, I think the world has really fundamentally changed. Um, the other observation I would make is we're running all these experiments, and the experiments are fantastic, but the experiments, of course, are all incredibly unnatural, right? Because it's not just that we sent everybody home, it's also that we sent everybody home, you know, A, because of the pandemic, you know, B, we shut down all the schools and sent all the kids home, right, which is a, you know, real real challenge for parents, Um, you know, C we told everybody they can't like visit their friends and family, you know, D we told everybody they can't go to like restaurants or like sporting events or shows or like dinner parties or anything. And so we've run, like, I I think I'm ready to make the argument. Like we've run the harsh version of the experiment. Um, when we come out of this, I think is when we get to run, I would say the more normal version of the experiment, right. Which is like, okay, like what if you could work from home, but you could also like your kids could go to school and you could go out to dinner and like, you could go see your family right? Um, and so, like, however well things are working now, like, I think you can make a case that, you know, the companies that continue to do, you know, continue to be either total or partial work from home, um, things will go even better than they're going now. Ben, would you agree with that? Or do you think that's too optimistic? Um,
2: I, I think it's certainly possible. I think that, um, you know, one thing is... You know, young people in particular, like their social network is at at work, and mm-hmm. they value that. It's one of the things that you know we've had I, we've had comments from our own employees saying, you know, all the joy is gone from the job. Like right. <laughs> the thing I like most was being around the people, all these smart people, and so great, and I get to see them, and uh, you know, it, it's like a very big part of my life. And being remote, you know, that's gone. So. I, I think that's a real thing. And then the other one, you know, they, you get into things like career development and you know how that works. And, and I, I kind of think in a way it would be better work from home. Cause you know, maybe less politicking and all that kind of thing. But um, I think that's an open question. And then, the, the, you know, the final open question for me is just, you know, kind of information and sales. Like, so in a meeting, um, my friend Steve Stout had a, had a great, Thing he said to me on this, which is, look, the information you get, you know, particularly in a sales situation, before the meeting and after the meeting, is usually more valuable than the information you get in the meeting. Um, and so, I do think there's real competitive advantage to, to being face to face because there's not really a before and after a meeting on Zoom. Uh, so, so I, you know, it's it's
1: definitely going to be interesting
2: to find out. I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then the other thing that I really noticed is that. My extrovert friends, um, you know, which are you know a lot of the people who are running companies or senior executives in companies, you know, basically the big debate that they're having is, you know, do we all go back to work? Do we all go back to the office? In fact, you know, maybe for, for the reason you just <laughs> described, um, uh, you know, because they like being around people, um, you know, or do we go to a hybrid model, right? And so the hybrid model, of course, is one in which you know maybe people are in the office, you know, three days a week or four days a week or even two days a week, and you know maybe there's flex and you know, they're they're starting to work on like, well, how do we have, you know, how do we do meetings and our meetings all on Zoom or do we have, you know, conference rooms plus Zoom setups and so forth. And so there's sort of this kind of hybrid thing. And I think, you know, probably the, my sense is the median Silicon Valley company is probably assuming the world will go hybrid, um, you know, for the most part. Um, Yeah. What I noticed is that my introvert friends have a very different point of view on this, um, which basically is like, basically it's like finally the world has discovered that all this like in-person stuff is not necessary. Yep. Um, and, in fact, you know, uh, my introvert friends say I'm getting a lot more joy out of the way things are working now. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I have one company where, like, there was this actually very interesting form of feedback in the survey that they did last fall, which basically is the engineers were all of a sudden like, ah, finally we're on a level playing field with all the sales guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, It's <Yeah. laughs> like we're not just getting talked over in every meeting. Um, and so... And then and then, what the introverts point to basically is like, there are actually two kinds of tech projects that have been very successful over the last, you know, 30 years that never involved offices, right? And, and one form is open source, right? Mm-hmm. Which I, I don't think there's been a single open source project, you know, including Linux and GNU and, you know, many, many, many Emacs and many, many other things over the years, uh, you know, where there was ever quote unquote on Office. You know, it was it was always fully distributed, and in fact, you know, primarily, you know, completely online communication. You know, tremendous amount of basically, you know, in the old days, you know, Usenet and IRC. You know, these days, it would be like you know whatever Slack and things like that. Um, and then you know, more recently, crypto, right? Um, in which you know many of the you know world's leading crypto projects, even the ones that are set up as companies, you know, just kind of assumed you know default remote. you know, honestly, to the point where it was making me nervous last year as we were we were funding more more crypto companies that were were remote first. And so what those companies basically say is, look, like it's all in the mechanics of how you build, you know, basically the communication infrastructure and the tooling. Um, and if you build that stuff all properly, um, uh, you know, you're, you're going to basically be able to run these things fully remote in perpetuity. And yeah, some people might not like it because they want an office to go to, but for the people who like that kind of thing, they'll be hyper productive in that kind of environment. Um, yeah. Anyway. So what, what's your view on that?
2: Yeah. Well, I think that with both kind of, open source companies and, uh, well, and crypto companies kind of are open source for the most part. Um, You don't, the the thing that they don't tend to do, at least, you know, in that mode is kind of sell to organizations. And like, if you sell to individuals um, or individuals within organizations or that kind of thing, that the whole face-to-face thing is, I think, a lot more overrated than if you're kind of trying to whatever convince IBM to go wall-to-wall slack or something like that then that that becomes really complex to do over video if your competitor is showing up in person and so so there are certain kinds of things that I don't know that I've seen people solve yet um but you know maybe like the people get used to like living in that way and communicating in that way. And that works. I mean, I I definitely am open-minded about it just because yeah. it's been so shocking what's happened
1: so far. Well, it, it may also just, you know, it may just be different kinds of companies, right. And different kinds of employees yeah. that kind of sort, you know, kind of sort along this axis. I think that's right.
2: And then look, there are, you know, we, we, de- I just talked to a crypto company. Um, I won't name the name, but uh, you know, very smart founders um and, you know, they're building, you know, one of the hottest projects and it's a developer platform um, and they can't wait to get back in the office because they just like being in the office with each other so much.
1: Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. In fact, there, there are other companies, of course, yeah. that we know that, that literally have, you know, have have they literally now have homes or compounds, um, yeah. you know, in, often in very creative places, yeah. um, uh, which actually turns out to be good for the burn rate uh, among, <laughs> among other things. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, that, that, for sure. Um, so let's go to a third question, which is actually a management question that kind of follows from, uh, Susan Groff, which is, uh, in the hard thing about hard things, you warn against the management standard, um, don't bring me problems without bringing me a solution. And I think she means by that, that you disagree with that statement. Is that right? <laughs> or, no, um, yeah, agree with it?
2: well, I think it's a dangerous cultural idea. So I think that as an, you know, this is, and you're really good on this topic, which is how the system should behave and how you should behave as an individual. Are not the same thing, um, and you know for the system, i.e., the communication system of a of a company, if people have it in their head that don't bring me a problem if they, if I don't have a solution and I don't know the solution, or if it's just like too hairy and complex a problem for me to like know how to solve, right? Like if I'm an engineer, like do I really know how to do the CEO job better than you, and I can tell you how to solve this effed up problem that I'm dealing with? Right. Um, then you you lose the information, uh, which is extremely dangerous because you have to know what's wrong with your company if you're going to fix it. And I'm like that, the, the first step in fixing a problem is knowing you have a problem, and so uh, I think it is a, like a, a really dangerous idea. Now, individually in a career, I think that you know as you're um, kind of. Be trying to be a good employee, it's good to try and think of a solution for the problems you come up with, for sure. So I, I think that part of it is fine. Um, but, you know, I think the challenge for CEOs is how do you get bad news to get to you? Um, because people are afraid to, you know, tell the CEO the bad news. And one of my favorite uh, parts of the movie, The Wiz, is when uh, Eveline did that number, ain't nobody, better, better bring me no bad news. <laughs> because it's like you know, because I'm going to be pissed that I want to deal with that, that bullshit. And like a lot of CEOs do give off that vibe. And I think that that, you know, companies always degenerate that have that culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you think about, well, how do you encourage it? You have to normalize it. You have to make it so that, hey, we love problems. We love to hear about the broken shit in the company. You know, it makes us feel good. And, you know, one of the things that I did used to do is in order to come to my staff meeting and staff meeting was always kind of, you know, when you're a CEO, people want to be in that meeting because it's kind of the innermost circle. It said, look, you're not allowed in the staff meeting unless you tell me something broken in the organization, because I know that we have a lot of things broken because we're big enough. And if you don't know one, then you're not doing your job and I don't have any use for you in my meeting. And so that would kind of normalize. Everybody goes, OK, not only are we allowed to talk about it, but we're being forced to talk about all the things wrong with the company. And then that just kind of made it normal. And then once it's normal, it's just easy to deal with it because it takes the emotion out of it. You know, whereas if somebody once a year comes to you and says, hey, your culture is all messed up and it's broken and like, we don't have a strategy or all the you know, things people say when it gets out of hand, right. um, then it makes you feel like, okay, that's abstract. It's weird. I don't even know what the fuck to do with it. Are you criticizing me? Like you get all that and then it just makes it worse. Whereas if you know every little thing that's wrong, it never gets to that point, and you can solve things, and it's just kind of normal way of living.
1: Yeah. And so Susan asked, added, added the uh, the question: um, How do you build a culture where critical information flows, especially now uh, when everybody's remote? Because presumably, right, the mechanisms that you had in the past, you know, may may, may probably are not working in this environment.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, it, that's a really great question, and I think it's. Um, it's a little hard to answer because, uh, you know, we're in the middle of it. I think yep. that, um, you know, we I, I can say this, you know, at, at our firm, you know, and as you know, Mark, like we're redesigning all the meetings. <laughs> um, we're trying to make better and better use of the tools, uh, and then I think that as a um, as a leader you just have to, you don't bump into people in the hall. So if you don't call them individually and you're doing actually a good job of this too, which is like, you know, also helps me is just like call people up and and talk to them because in lieu of bumping into them um, because you're not going to bump into them. And so you're missing a whole lot of communication and particularly, you know, where you kind of get like people like to, people in a meeting don't want to say, Hey, this is all screwed up, but, like, if you bump into the hallway and you go, hey, like, how's it going? Anything in your way? What's making it hard to do your job? Then they'll tell you. Um, but you have to recreate that artificially, I think, is probably one of the biggest challenges.
1: Yeah, so as an introvert, I never like bumping into people in the halls. And so that technique never worked for me. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, seeing like this is better for you. This is better. So yeah, so Ben alluded to my technique. So what I'm doing now, which has, has worked quite well. So and it's a it's a it's a two part win, which is I've been going for these really long walks, uh, either in the morning or the afternoon, you know, finding some place where I can go for, you know, two or three hours uh, on a walk. Um, and then basically, I just I, I literally, keep, you know, keep a rolling cadence of one on one phone calls um, and try to touch everybody, um, you know, who's who kind of is in this category, you know, maybe once a month. Um, and then I, I bet and then what happens, I, I just pack all those calls into those walks. Um, and, uh, it, yeah. And, and it, like, I think number one, it's been good. And then number two, it's like people do like, this is a time where people really value feeling connected. Um, it's, like, so far, everybody's been very excited to talk to me on my walks. Nobody has, nobody has said it's not a good use of time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And no, everybody picks up the phone right away. It's great. Cause nobody's doing anything. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> Exactly. So actually, okay. On a related topic. Okay. So uh, Anisa Mirza asks, um, can you tell us about a time you felt most lonely and isolated as a founder, uh, and advice to fellow founders struggling with this? Um, so let me just, I'll just start by saying like this, this is honestly something I always struggled with. Um, you know, specifically yeah. when I, when I was the founder of, 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 of companies, um, it's, it's, not, it's honestly, not you know, it's been easier with venture firms are different. So it's, it, this has been easier, but you know, being in the hot seat as the actual founder of a company, um, you know, it's really hard and then there's there's like an even more advanced version of the hard, right, which is like if you're if you're doing it on your own, like if you're a solo, they call a solo founder yep. Yep. Um, yep. Or, or if you know if, or, or, if, or if for whatever reason you get in a situation where you can't you know you can't have this kind of relationship with with the other founder or other founders. Yep. Um, and so I think part of it is just like it's just really tough. Um, and yep. this is part of the kind of I think thing that comes with founding a company, um, honestly, which is just, just like you you do and and, and as well as you know, being a CEO, um, which is like you really do naturally basically internalize all the issues um, and you internalize all the problems and all the stress and you, you know, personally identify with it yep. um, mm-hmm. and you get emotionally yep. wrapped up in it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then you really do have a major issue figuring out who to talk to, um, because if you talk to people in the company, you you, know, you really risk like really warping, you know, kind of uh, a lot of things w- 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 which we, we could talk about. You know, if you talk to people on the outside, you know there's there's two problems. One is you know they just they might not understand, right? Which is which is a real real challenge. And then the other is, um, you know they might be sympathetic, but they just like fundamentally like don't understand what you're going through. And then the other is, of course, like you have to be very careful who you can trust because you know these are all the most important things. Um, you know, and if, if if the company's high profile or has raised a lot of money or whatever, like there's real risk involved. Um, and so, I guess I would say I, for one, like really struggled with this. And so, I, I, and, I and I and I just say that even without giving an answer, because I would just say, like, this is this is super normal. And, and my experience is like a lot of founders, at least, like really never want to admit this um, yeah. because it feels <laughs> yeah. right. It feels like admitting it basically uh, signals weakness. Um, and signaling weakness as a founder is, is, is extremely dangerous. And so, Ben, oh, yeah. the, the, yeah. the
2: ultimate weakness, like, yep. you know, you're terrified, you don't think you can do the job, you don't think you belong You can be CEO. Um, <laughs> you don't want to do the job all those things. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you have also you know this what you described is kind of was the main reason I wrote The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I mean, that book was basically about this problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh which is um you, you know people don't there there's and your the other CEOs won't tell you how like screwed up their company is. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, so so you feel like you're all alone. I mean, the, the worst, the very, very worst moment that I ever had on this was, um, and I wrote about it in the book, but, you know, we were on the, we were going out to do the IPO, the impossible IPO, literally called the IPO from hell by business week. Well, we were on the road, <laughs> like, so yep. while we're on the road, IPO from hell, we have three weeks of cash. Um, it's, you know, the NASDAQ dropped. I think uh, every single day we were on the road, our comparables dropped. Well, you know, in the three weeks we were selling the things, it's just like the worst fucking time ever. And, you know, I get a call, uh, you know, while we're trying to get this thing done from my father-in-law who, you know, like any of the, you know, my father-in-law, he and I were close, but he never called me. Like he just, he wasn't a guy who called you on the phone. Like that wasn't his thing. And, you know, the other thing about him was like, he had, been through everything in life, you know his his father was shot when he was five years old, yeah, you know, he was a black man in Texas, and you know he and his mom his mom couldn't do anything, so he she had to marry this horrible guy with twelve kids, and they like literally you know had him out like uh they they wouldn't let him eat with them, they would throw his food into the pig pen he'd have to fight the pigs for the food when he's five, like that type of shit so he'd been through like that and then. He had two children who had passed away and like just a really been through hard, hard things. And he called me and I could tell by his voice he was shaking. Um, And, you know, he said, look, um, Felicia can't breathe, but she's my wife. But she's going to, you know, we think she's gonna be okay. We're at the hospital and I'm on the road and like. I know I need to go home. Like I, but I can't go, the company is over. If I go home, like there's no way this IPO is landing. If we go, there's, I mean, you know that Mark, nobody else knows that, but you and I know, like there's no way if I went home there, it's over. Um, and you know, trying to make that decision between like the company and all 500 employees going, like getting laid off and everybody losing their money and the whole thing being over, um, or like not going home when like my wife's like in an emergency situation, a hospital uh, was like the worst feeling in the world. And I couldn't even, you know, it was one thing I couldn't even discuss it with you because what could you tell me other than to go home? Like there's no, it puts you in an unfair position and um, like we ended up completing the IPO and I still feel badly about that. Uh, But it, you know, it's just, I would just say, and, and you know, one of my wife's favorite piece that I wrote is called "The Struggle" because it it's about that feeling that I had that day. Um, And all I can say is, you know, you just have to keep in mind that that is the path to doing something larger than yourself, to doing something great is to go through that pain. Um, And there's no way to it other than through that pain. So it's part of it, uh, but it, man, it's hard. And uh, you got to focus on what you can do, not what on you, not on what you can't do, because
1: there's a whole lot that you can't do in that situation. Yeah, and then you, you highlighted something that I think gets missed in the public discussion a lot, um, which is you know kind of the way these companies get talked about. It's like you know the founders or CEO or whatever are kind of doing these things for themselves and for their own aggrandizement. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's probably some truth to that from time to time. You know, to be totally yeah. honest. Um, yeah but you know you alluded to something which is like it wasn't just you and it wasn't just me right and just in a, in, a, in your situation, it was 500 other people uh, yeah. who worked for the company and by the way, it was even beyond that right because it was also like all the customers you know that had like better their careers on us yep right like if we went away like all of a sudden they just look like idiots you know for having having for having you know kind of trusted us and so like and, and then there's there's all the families. Um, and then of course, you know, this was in a time, you know, which, you know, hopefully won't repeat, but this is, and this is in a time where like, you couldn't just go across the street and get a job, right? It was
2: yeah, like, you couldn't, you could not get a job. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's like nine months, a year, a year and a half to get a tech job at that time. Yeah.
1: Yep. And so, like, the 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 pressure, and, you know, in, in boom times, I think you kind of forget this just because it's like, okay, one of these companies doesn't work out, people presumably can go get other jobs. But, like, number one, that's not even necessarily true in boom times um, because, like, yeah. you know, different people have different backgrounds and skill sets, and maybe it's not so easy. Um, and then the other is, like, it doesn't, it's, the times aren't always like this, um, and they won't always be like this, you know, for, for, for any of us either, you know, going forward, so. So this this level of pressure, and and of course you know it, it sort of combines, which is like when the market turns down, you know it's much much easier to get in trouble as a company, right? Uh, and, to, and to be faced with these challenges.
2: <laughs> yep, you know it all goes together. It's terrible. <laughs> and then and then well, the other thing is all the people who you're letting down are all the people who trusted you, right? Who mm-hmm. like trusted you to they trusted their career with us, right? And and now like we're going to just break that trust massively. It's it's a scary feeling.
1: Yeah, so maybe we could end on or maybe at one, or on this question. We can end <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a practical note. So um, I, I've never been a part of it, but um, the CEOs, there's this thing called the YPO, uh, stands mm-hmm. for young, young Presidents Organization, that a lot of CEOs I know have been a part of. Um, and it mm-hmm. basically, I think it's a good model, which they basically set up a, essentially a trust bubble. Um, and it basically, it's a sort of a very carefully calibrated yeah. organization where you become part of a group of peers um, yep. and then they basically sign up to like really trust each other. Right. Cause they got to like actually talk about like the real shit, um, mm-hmm. and it can't leak. Um, yep. and so I know a lot of CEOs have been through that who like that a lot. And then, you know, the obvious, you know, kind of, you know, kind of homespun version of that is, you know, uh, you know, kind of a group of founders basically creating the same, the same thing or, or working with, you know, their, you know, their venture firm or their, their angel investors or whatever to, to figure out a group like that.
2: Yeah, no, I, like I. I've heard great things too. I've never been in one. Um, I kind of wish I had been in one, um, but I I think that's a lot of it. Like just knowing that there are other people who have it worse. I mean, like one of my favorite um, conversations I have with CEOs is I I have one CEO whose business just got absolutely wrecked by the pandemic, you know, but he's still, he's still doing like an amazing job with it. But you know, he, he, he said to me, Ben, I'm the first, post-revenue company, you know, because they're pre-revenue company, I'm the first post-revenue company, and I said, no, I was the first post-revenue company, and so it's, you know, just so like that feeling that he's like, okay, I'm talking to somebody who, like, screwed it up worse than I did, um, is, a, is a is a nice feeling, so having, having a group with people who will tell you the truth,
1: uh, I think would be a huge help. Yeah, another version of that would be the for-profit, the, the non-profit company that used to be a for-profit company. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Find yourself running a charity. Um so uh let's see, let's keep going. So um actually on the same management theme. So um who uh, uh Sunil uh Rajaraman asks, who is the best CEO you worked with whose companies did not succeed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so let me say this
2: first about that is that we've worked with a, a lot of really um outstanding CEOs whose companies didn't work and Uh, and kind of at a high level, actually one of the greatest CEOs, um, you know, that I ever met, uh, was Bill Campbell and his company go failed miserably. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes the idea at the time, you know, the timing is just wrong and no CEO, no matter what your skill um, can necessarily get you out of that problem. And so, I, I, you know, a failed company to me doesn't mean that the CEO is no good. That that is not how I interpret that at all. But you know, we've had we've had a lot of great ones in the portfolio. One that comes to mind that who just did an amazing job, um, but you know, like the technology just wasn't going to get there was Jason Rosenthal <laughs> at uh, Lytro. Yep. I thought yep. you know he he did an amazing job as a chief executive, but you know, building the team, um, executing the plan, pivoting. Uh, winning the deals, everything that you would want a CEO to do, but it just didn't, uh, you know, work at the
1: end of the day. Yep. Yeah. I'd highlight, I was actually going to answer, answer the question in a, in a, in a different way, complementary way, which is, um, you know, the, the related question is like, you have these things and you, you mentioned Go, Bill Campbell's company Go as an example from the early nineties, you have these companies that didn't work, which then in later years turned out to have been like an explosion of talent that yeah. like made its way. Like if you look at, so the, I'll just back up for people who haven't heard about this. So actually there's way, way before the iPhone uh, and way before the iPad mm-hmm. um, like 20 years earlier people had these ideas for basically handheld computers, tablet computers, computers you know handheld computers that were phones like these ideas were old ideas um, and so there was an entire generation of companies in the late 80s, early 90s around what at the time at the time the term was pen computing yeah. actually, the idea was a computer in your hand that you would you would interface with a, in a, with, a, with a pen with a, with a stylus. Oh, but it was basically, that's that idea. It was basically iPhone, iPad 20 years too early. And so there was a whole generation of startups that actually formed to actually build those things at that time. And I think they basically, across the board, all failed.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. Gen- general magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Go,
1: uh, yeah, they, every single thing, every, yeah. And I don't think anybody succeeded, right? Yeah, and so total wipeout. But what was what was interesting was, so Bill, Bill Campbell's company with this company called Go, and ba- basically they were building iOS like 20, 20 years earlier, and then they were working with another company called EO that was building the chip that, that didn't work, which basically today is like, you know, the Apple, you know, they like the Apple chips. Um, but like Go became legendary in later years because like Bill went on to play these like, you know, central roles in, in the turnaround of, of Apple and in the, you know, kind of creation of Google and all these other companies. And then there were mm-hmm. all these other And he ran yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah. And he ran into it. And then there were all these other executives that came out of Go. Like if you trace the family tree, like they ended up running, like, it felt like, like half of Silicon Valley. And they did a great job. Well, a great, a great example. Our friend Stratton Sclavos, Um, right? Stratton,
2: was, Donna Dudek, Stratton Sklavos, Mike Comer. Um, yeah, that yeah. whole executive staff were,
1: yeah. both great companies. Yeah. So, to Str- to Stratton is one example. I think was the head of sales at Go, and he was he yeah. bit, became later the CEO of Network Solutions, and basically built the domain name industry that we you know that we we know today. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, that company was a talent explosion. You mentioned General Magic, um, which was another one of these talent explosions. Like it didn't work at all, but like those people are all over the valley, you know. Still, yeah. Um, and then you know, even the pay, even you know the PayPal Mafia, like you know, pay, PayPal worked. Um, you know, it works. Yeah. It worked better than Go, um, yeah. but you know, it didn't get that big. Um, you know, before it before it before eBay it was bought acquired. it, yeah, right, exactly. And then that and again that that talent explosion is like all over the valley, and so there's something special, you know, in some of these companies where they just like it's like there's something about the people who were selected um, you know, there's something about the nature of the mission of those companies that, you know, cause those people to want to be there. There's something about the leadership that coalesced all that. There's something about the, you know, um, you know, just like, and then there's almost something about the tragedy of it almost, which is like, you know, it, it, like people who are at those companies tend to have a burning desire to prove themselves. <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah. yeah no, I noticed that with the PayPal people, a lot.
1: <laughs> they are determined. yeah, right. Right. The PayPal people, I don't know if they, you know, I don't know if they would say this out loud. I don't know if they admit it to themselves, but like, I think they all look back and they say, wow, you know, that PayPal could have been a big independent, you know, could have been a Google, Apple, you know, Microsoft, Amazon class company, um, you know, in and, in a, you know, <laughs> for example, had it not been built right into the teeth of, of the uh, of the 2000 crash, you know, along, yeah. along with uh, their company. But yeah, it's so there's something special. And, and, and then, you know, the other thing that you kind of see when you've been in this business for for a while is basically it's like, OK. Sometimes you have your choice or maybe question, Ben, this is a question for you, which is like, sometimes Mm -hmm. you have your choice, you're, you're hiring for a job and you've got one person coming out of basically a failed company where it's like, okay, they had really good people there. Like, I know that, but like, you know, how do I think about that on their resume? And like, it never got very far. And did did they really see what great look like? Mm -hmm. And did they really learn good things? And then you've got somebody else who's coming out of a company, um, that basically is just like extremely established and dominant. You know, and very powerful and, and and there you've got this totally different set of questions which is like you know what did they really do and how hard did they work and, and so forth and so but but like a lot of people would go for the basically the name brand in those cases and by the way not just because it's the name brand because like the feeling is okay if, if you know yeah. somebody who's been at a big successful company has probably learned more about how to succeed than somebody who was at one of these one of these companies that didn't work
2: yeah and I think that I, I think that logic gets way overplayed and is is a lot wrong you know people, Really focus on uh, hiring, of course, out of companies like Google and Facebook. You know, partly because you know they're so powerful in their college recruiting scheme, so they get a lot of raw horsepower in terms of into the company. But if you (laughs) would compare that to kind of the people who came out of PayPal or General Magic, I would say you're you get kind of more for your money out of PayPal or General Magic because you're getting someone who went through the extreme struggle of trying to find product market fit with, like, some of the smartest people in the world. And that, you you know, that gauntlet that they ran, you can't produce at Google. Like, there's no experience at Google that matches that. Um, You know, there's no, like, just amount of, you particularly when you talk about leadership positions, like, you can't replicate that in a company that's got a monopoly. It just, there's no there's no real inventiveness sense of urgency that, 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 that can exist in those environments in the same way. So I do think, but, but it's not, you know, it's not just any startup, it's the special one. Um, and, right. you know, those are, you know, the ones that have the, you know, all those companies had an amazing VC funding, you know, brought in like crazy talent and, you know, and still failed. Uh, so, so that, You know, I would say if you get somebody out of a company like that, that that's going to be the best. Also, the the other thing is, you know, in the special case of salespeople, I think you know companies who try and recruit their sellers out of monopolies is just silly because that's not really selling. That's just you know accepting orders. (laughs) Like, how hard is it to sell AdWords? Like, not hard. Um, Whereas, how hard is it to you know sell the second place or the third place enterprise? You know, piece of software and make your number almost impossible. So, right. you you have to take into account the degree of difficulty in the job when you look at some of these things.
1: Yeah, you may remember remember uh, Bill Davidow, who's a Silicon legend who wrote a book on high tech marketing. He said the yeah. definition of a great marketer is somebody who can sell a dog. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it yeah. A, he didn't he didn't mean a canine to be clear. He meant like a product oh. that sucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. Or or, or 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 not even a product that sucks, like a product that nobody wants.
2: Yeah. Right. Yep. 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 No, it, it's funny, you know, uh Ali Goetz actually I'm doing a session with him on Clubhouse tomorrow at uh at five, but Ali is the CEO of Databricks and um he hired the uh the head of sales there, Ron um Grabowski. He uh he had come from a company that was literally selling um FTP. <laughs> like FTP. Right. Like trial right. but like a more secure version of it, yep. and that's what he was selling. And he was able to, uh, like, literally get that company public, yep. <laughs> selling that. Yep. And so you know, Ollie and I always talk about it, he's like, the reason he's good is he he had to sell FTP. Yep. You know, now he's selling like the AI platform for the world. Right. <laughs> you know, yep. and so it's it's so easy for him. It's like crazy. And yeah, then well, all so, the guys who could sell that working for him at the last
1: place, uh, also incredible. Yeah, well, it's like taking it's like taking the taking the like yeah. uh, the ankle weights off of a marathon runner or something, right? Yeah, it, no doubt, no doubt. It's just yeah, <laughs> just large, large ankle weights, large ankle, large, large, and very outdated ankle weights. Um, okay, good. Um, so let's uh, move on. So uh, Arjun Shah asks. Um, and Ben, this will be great for you. So what methodical ways can an unknown or under networked founder, uh, leverage, uh, to gain access to startup capital?
2: You know, I think that our friend, Paul Graham had the greatest line on this, that he made into t-shirts, which is, you know, make something that people want. You know, if you, the great thing about the world today is it, you know, it doesn't cost, it costs you your time to make something, but if you make it and people want it, um, Every investor will pay attention to that. Uh, and, you know, that's the best calling card by far. Um, much better than any kind of uh, networking or, or you know, work or finagling or, or anything like that. If you can, you know, manifest your idea. And, it, you know, we're seeing this in music too, by the way, um, where it used to be, you know, you'd have to like know somebody and get to Hollywood or get to New York and all this stuff. And now you've got guys like NLE Chopper you know 16 years old in memphis and makes a song and puts it out and all of a sudden he's got an 8 million dollar contract and i think that's very true in venture capital right now which in you know look like in the old days you it would take a lot of money just to get a company started and that's not the case anymore you need a laptop um and so that's you know if you really have the gift and um you know have the inspiration and the genius um then you know make something that people want and you will
1: get the money. So let me ask the let me ask the the tougher version of the question then. Building on that, mm-hmm. um, which is like okay that that sounds good, but like you know basically you know everybody knows. Um, uh, by the way, you know correctly or not, but everybody knows that like venture capital is venture capital it's very common for venture capital firms to only take warm introductions, um, right? In, in, mm-hmm. Which means introductions introductions brokered by somebody they already know, um, and that you know a lot of investors won't look at things that you know quote unquote come over the transom, which is to say kind of just you know show up or get sent in. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if I'm somebody, um, and by the way, this was me once upon a time growing up in the cornfields yeah. of Wisconsin, um, <laughs> yeah. but you knew so, Jim,
2: somehow you met Jim Clark.
1: Well, that was Jim, 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 Jim decoded that one. Like, had I not had I met Jim, I would have had this very direct, direct issue. Um, but, but, the, you know, the, 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 serious form of the question, right. is like, okay, like, you know, look, these, these VCs and these angel investors and everybody, like they're all running around doing deals today. They're all running around doing deals with people, you know, kind of through these networks that they've built. You know, over the years, like you know, look, maybe they didn't all start with like a silver, you know, spoon in their mouth. They're kind of built into the Silicon Valley network, but like yeah. somehow they got there, and now they all talk to each other, and they talk to kind of people who are like them, um, yeah. and um, and you know, they're they're so busy taking referrals from the people that they know and have worked with in the past, and they you know, they don't really want these mm-hmm. kind of cold these these cold leads, and so basically, like, how do you punch into this network? like, you know, I guess I'd say is if, if you don't have the thing somebody wants, or even if you do have the thing, you know, you build the thing that people want, like, how, how do you like, what's the best way to punch to that network if you're not already in it?
2: Yeah, so, so I would say, you know, kind of first off, um, you did make something that somebody wanted, which okay. was the browser, which is how Jim Clark found you, right? Yeah, um, And Jim Clark wasn't a VC or anything. He was a guy who had built a company. And I think that you know particularly when you make technology products that people want technology people find out about it and then there it's a very short path to get to somebody like us if you know anybody in technology who likes your product um i mean we that is a pretty fast connection like it's it's not it's not closed end in the least like it's not like uh, i would say um, things I've heard about trying to crack into Hollywood, which is like a much more closed and difficult and challenging system in that way. Um, and then I would say, you, you know, there's so many ways to meet tech people now, um, you know, with social media, with clubhouse and so forth. I mean, my wife runs a show that, you know, is like, you know, people inside and outside of tech. And, and then we do a lot of work to try and expand our network to get to more and more people. But, um, you know, you just, you you gotta meet people. Um, they have to get to know you. Um, you know, if you're smart, they always want to introduce you to their other smart friends. Um, and you know, builds on that and so forth. But like, I think the main thing is to engage it and not get discouraged and not feel like you don't belong. Um, I think that the thing is most people get self-defeated on this as opposed to, I mean, I also came from the outside, right? Like I, you know, nobody in my family ever worked in a company or started a company or knew anything about companies. You know, we were all politics. And then my mom was a nurse and, you know, so I, you know, like, how do you get in? Um, and you, you just keep like trying to meet people and you're like, you have to have the talent. Um, it's a very competitive field and all that kind of thing. But if you have the talent and you work what I think we see is like most of the people in Silicon Valley, interestingly, are outsiders. Like when you think about the people we fund um, and you go back through their history, like they didn't, you know, they, they came from other countries. Yeah. Like, let alone, like they're not, most of them are not from the US.
1: Yeah. Yeah, including some pretty exotic places like Communist Romania. Just yeah, funny Communist
2: Romania. We've got
1: people from uh, Jordan in the portfolio. Right. We've got people from right. Egypt
2: uh you know just all over the place um you know quite a few people from israel Uh and you know like a lot of most of them english is a second language you know we just had uh blad on the other day on on two of the clubhouse things like you know he's he's not from here <laughs> um, and it's uh
1: you know it's, it's an amazing place in that way yeah i'd give maybe two tactical or two kind of practical things that people could think about so one is you know, what one of the just amazing opportunities that exist today is that these these big companies, these big tech companies are now so big. Um, and they're hiring so many people. Um, and they're hiring yeah. so many people in lots of different places. Um, and so the, just the most obvious thing I would say, in addition to what Ben said, is like, look, like go, go to work for one of the giants. Yep. Um, you know, yep. and, and preferably you know, one one of the giants is still on their on their way up, right? So, you know, a company with like, you know, con- continuing momentum um and like even even if that involves like this would be my cheat code like if i if i just like showed up here and i didn't have any connections that's what i I'd just like get into any of these companies um and then work your way up um once you're inside and you'll just like naturally build a network like if you yeah. work at it and then the, the, and then the people at those companies at the big tech companies the a lot of the you know engineers and the managers and the vps and so forth that those companies are like highly connected into the startup world you know many of them come from the startup world and so. That's that's like one cheat code. I just bring it up because I think there's a specific version of this problem, which is somebody who's in like you know another city or whatever, and working at a you know maybe a, not even in tech or in a mid-sized tech company yeah. that maybe Valley people haven't heard of, and they're they're wondering how to kind of get plugged in. And it, it, it maybe there's like one more step in their career path. Um, yeah,
2: it, yeah. No, I think that's a really good idea. And you know, companies are networks. Um, right. So like everybody, every employee there is in the network, and uh, and everybody quickly finds out who's good. And so, you know, you go to a company like
1: that and you're good and it will get recognized yep. um, really fast, by the way. And then the other is there's a book that I read years ago that I can't believe I read and I have no idea why I read it, but I, it's always <laughs> stuck with me. Ben, you'll find this very funny. Um, the, book is, the book is called Never Eat Alone. Um, oh,
2: yeah, yeah, I know that book.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And the,
2: the, it's the, book. yeah.
1: it's the ultimate networking book. It's the ultimate networking book. And... Um, What he basically says, this is years ago, but the way I remember it, what he basically says um, is, look, flip the problem. Um, Instead of being the person who's trying to figure out how to get in the network, basically be the person that helps everybody else get into networks. Um, And and basically what he says is, look, and he he structures them basically as as dinners. And and so he has this basically this whole template laid out for basically how how to start holding dinners um, and then basically how to invite like cross sections of people uh, in those dinners um, so they can get to know each other. Um, And then, of course, you know the next step beyond that is you become known as the people who the person who brings people together, and then before you know it, like you're starting to like broker people for like jobs um, yep. by the way, you're starting to introduce people who end up you know in romantic relationships um,
2: <laughs> and by the way, just that skill if yep. you're elite at that,
1: you don't need any other skills like right. that's good enough to make your career right exactly and so and, and what he points out is people don't have to wait. this is the thing that stuck with me in the book. You don't have to wait until you're successful to do this, right? Um, yeah. Because yeah. there are always lots of young people running around who have this yeah. exact same problem. Um, and so you basically start by gathering all the people like you, right? Um, you know, especially like you know, early you know, people who are earlier in their careers. And then basically, as people's careers develop, you get into this feedback loop, right? Where you know, sort of members of your network, people participating, right? Um, uh, you know, they they start gaining power and influence, and they start knowing people, and then you're able to, you know, through them, pull in other people um and, and then it's it's also this kind of thing you know we try to do with the firm which is it's sort of a pay it forward you know kind of thing um which is you know instead of instead of starting by asking people for things like introductions to people you know start start by giving them um and then you you end up building basically so much gratitude uh through that that the, the rest of actually really easy yeah
2: yeah yeah definitely It'll like it takes a lot of social courage to do that but it, like if you've got that
1: um the yeah that that definitely works yeah and he That's says like he says part, by the way yeah yeah. He says people overthink it. It's like, it doesn't need to be like a fancy steak restaurant or like a fancy, whatever this, that it's like, you know, like, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of, you know, card tables and, a, you know, and, a, and pizzas, you know, is a good way to get started. And So it's a, yeah. it's actually a, a low, a uh, low cost way to go. Uh, ben, we're yes. about at eight. Are you good to go a little bit longer? Sure. Okay. Let's keep going. All right. We're going to shift to a few industry topics that are very hot right now. So uh, the Thakkar asks, when and what do you think would be the inflection point after which the decentralized web would gain traction as a potential competitor to traditional centralized internet and cloud? And Ben, I'm going to ask you to start.
2: Yeah, so I think there are... Um, I wouldn't characterize it as one inflection point. So I, I, I think that um, what we're seeing already is kind of multiple inflection points. So we kind of, you know, the first one was kind of, Bitcoin like really holding value and, and uh, you know, people going, wow, this really is going to be worth something, um, which is amazing because it's just a piece of software, right? Uh, and, you know, just like the fact that that happened is such an incredible breakthrough. And then, you know, there was a quick uh, inflection point that went away or <laughs> two quick ones on Ethereum. One was um, CryptoKitties and then the other was uh um, ICOs. Uh, and you know, for regulatory reasons and performance reasons, those didn't quite take, but they certainly built awareness and created a lot of developer activity. Um, and then that's led to DeFi, which is another, I think, you know, really important inflection point. Uh, and then also NFTs or uh, non-fungible tokens. Um, and we're seeing just some major amazing activity Uh, in that space, both in, you know, in the art world and then also with Dapper Labs and collectibles uh, like NBA Top Shot and so forth. So, like, every time there's a new, really interesting application of the technology, you know, things start to inflect. Um, There's a huge amount of energy now uh, to kind of build decentralized social, you know, just due to the, you know, deplatforming and so forth and you know many of the building blocks are there um you know with storage systems and then you know the ability to do naming you know then there's various naming things and then also like what ethereum you know can provide there and and whatnot so you know there's a need for that nobody's built one that's uh performant and is usable it's the current social networks but you know as that comes it's very likely to move things forward but you know or when you think about kind of how tech one technology really challenges another, um, it does happen in waves. So if you think about SaaS, you know, first it was just little companies who would buy it. Then the features got more robust and bigger companies and then security got better and even bigger companies. And now the pandemic has hit, And, you know, hopefully everybody will go to it, but uh, you know, it's going to be a lot like that. I don't think it's going to be like one application in one point in time.
1: Yeah, so I make a couple observations. So there's a few aspects of this that I can't talk about because of professional affiliations. But um, yeah, I make a couple observations. So one is like, this question now exists at every layer of the stack, um, and that's new. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think honestly, I think the world ch- I think the world changed when Parler was 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 killed um, because Parler, mm-hmm. Parler, Parler was killed. I mean, by the way,
2: <laughs> Parler of all things built on WordPress, like
1: <laughs> maybe the worst technology effort of our lifetime. And yet, and yet, yeah. um, and so like the thing that was so striking is like Parler was taken out at like every layer of the stack in the same day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like they they yeah. said, like they a little like every service provider they had dumped them on the same day. And like, you know, look, maybe that doesn't happen to like a lot of things. Maybe that, you know, we'll, we'll see what that trend is. But like th- a lot of the really sharp engineers and entrepreneurs that I'm, you know, talking to that we're talking to on this stuff are, you know, basically since that moment are now thinking, and I would say a much broader way about this question. Um, which is like, okay, like there may be issues now at every layer of the stack. Right. And, and, and by the way, those, you know, mm-hmm. obviously those issues now exist at the level of the app store. Those issues exist at the level of, you know, the, the DNS, those levels of yep. mm-hmm. payments, <laughs> um, uh, they, um, can I, can I, can I, uh, I don't know if I, I if, if I ask you if I can mention it, I will have already mentioned it, but, um, can I, can I mention the personal connection you have to be platforming in the, in the payment space? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, that's a very dangerous association for me because he keeps getting
1: banned. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and mention that's it because it's saying, just too yeah. good. It, it's too good not to. And plus, I know he, yeah. he, he like he, he would enjoy the publicity. Um, yes. Uh, would. And, and by the way, like, you know, he's he's yeah, I would justifiably, I think, fairly upset. Uh, I think about what happened. But like, yeah, Ben's father actually got banned at one point from the payment networks and from the banking system. Um, and so for for those of you who think that sanctions are something that we only apply to Iran and, and North Korea. Uh, that's no longer the case. Yes, yes. <laughs> people can people can Google this if they want. I, I won't. I won't force Ben for to go into it. But yeah. um, at the payments it, level, <laughs> and, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> um, and then um, you know, also like you know, at the CDN level, um, you know, and then the CDN level is like you know, only one step above the ISP level. Um, and then um, you know, the app store is like adjacent to the browser. Right, and so you know, if the you know if the companies that make phones are 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 willing to ban at the App Store, you know, you know potentially the browser at some point becomes identified as a loophole, um, you know, the email client, um, and so like this this thing, you know, what what what, and again, for good, bad, indifferent, however you look at it, like this thing that happened um, seems to have really um, let's just say energized uh some of the smartest people we know into thinking, I would say much more broadly about this. Now, you know, th- this is like a big challenge. And so if you literally said, "Look, the challenge here is to build like a parallel internet, right, or a parallel like tech stack, like that's really hard. Um, on the other hand, like you know maybe maybe that opportunity is getting larger. We'll see. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know people say about about um about I was arguing with a friend of mine, an economist uh, friend of mine the other day, and he's like, "Look, like this censorship thing, like yeah, everybody's all in a tizzy, but like not that many people are getting censored. It's not that big of a deal. and Aren't people just going to stay where they are? And it's like, well, there is another reason for decentralization, right? Um, And and, and that reason, at least historically, and that reason is what's called permissionless innovation, right? So so censorship is like, censorship is like sort of the, it's the thing that you saw that now goes away, right? And then permissionless innovation is the thing that doesn't exist yet, right? Mm -hmm. And, and this is this is really what the web, the web had going for it like early on and what actually TCPIP TCP, had going for it early on. And actually even what like Twitter had going uh, for it early on, which basically is you could build whatever you want and you could build whatever you want without asking anybody for any permission. Like to, to, just to give an example, to build the browser, to build Mosaic, I never had to ask anybody's permission. I didn't have to go to the phone company and ask for permission. I didn't have to go to, you know, the, the tech companies and ask for permission. Like I could just build the code, deploy it, and it just worked. And so these distributed systems, right, have this, generally, they have this characteristic that you can build whatever you want on top of them, which which sort of falls out naturally from the fact that they're distributed, which is to say there's no central, you know, kind of no central choke point. And so the other way to think about this that I think about a lot is like, okay, when you have a centralized system of any kind where there is this choke point, probably they're not just censoring things that already exist. Probably they're preventing things from being built that don't exist yet. Right. And and these, by definition, are things that you can't see. Right. So my my friend I was debating this with, he's like, OK, well, give me like six examples of the the things that don't exist yet. And I'm like, well, like I could. I can make up examples right? I can hypothesize examples, but we won't know for sure until it's possible to build, because at that point, what you'll find is like a thousand really smart, creative people will come up with ideas that, you know, you and I would have never thought of. Um, And so that's the other form of energy. Um, that can be potentially unleashed here. Um, and I'm I'm really curious to see, you know, kind of how many layers of the stack this happens in, because I, I think it might be a more dramatic change than, than people think.
2: Yeah, and, you know, to your point, I think the internet, like, if you look at the number of brand new things that nobody had thought of that were built on the internet because there was permissionless innovation, um, I would expect the same thing to happen here. And already kind of we're seeing that, like, nobody built, uh, you know, Digital trading cards on the centralized system, and right. because one they didn't have permission and then the other was they weren't going to make any money um, so the other thing like the centralized thing doesn't not only ban you and not give you permission but also taxes the hell out of you even mm-hmm. if you do it um, as we're seeing with you know Apple charging thirty percent you know you build an app on that like you pay them thirty percent you build an app on the internet you don't pay anybody anything um, and you build an app on the decentralized web and the decentralized system, and you're not going to pay anybody anything. And I think that really changes the velocity of innovation by, you know, it's not by like twice as fast. It's like 10,000 times as fast when you do that. Yeah, that's right.
1: Uh, Bill Joy uh, had something on this. He said years ago, um, uh, Bill Joy was the founder, one of the founders of Sun Microsystems, which actually itself was one of these platforms that people built a lot of things on. Um, And he said, said, Joy's Law um, you said no matter how no matter how great your company is, um, most of the smart people in the world don't work there.
2: <laughs> yes, right. Yes, and that, and I think that's the biggest argument for decentralization, right there. Right. Exactly.
1: Uh, okay. Good. And then look a related question, um, uh, which uh, from Ryan Gentry is: um, Has crypto had its Netscape moment yet? Um, why or why not? And let me actually. That's a good question for you, I guess. I, I was at Netscape. You, you were. Founded Netscape. <laughs> you were there. You were dealing with the consequences of everything that I said in public. Yes. Um, so uh, let me expand the question, actually. Let me actually differentiate or propose a framework, Ben, for, to, to talk about this, which is, let, let's get, say there are Netscape moments and then there are iPhone moments, um, and I think mm-hmm. they might actually be different. Sure. Um, so the Netscape moment, I think, is what we were just talking about, which basically is the moment of, like, people going, aha. Now that yep. this thing exists, I can build X, Y, and Z on top of it. Mm-hmm. um Which um is based, and, and I say that because, like, Ben will certainly remember, like, you know, when early on in Netscape, it was not actually clear what the internet killer apps were going to be, right? Like, you know, that's that
2: a question we got every day, right? Like, right. every day, right. we're like, what's the killer app? What's the killer app? What's the killer app? <laughs> and it's like, fuck, we're the killer app. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, look, people, you know, smart people, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, famously got in his car and drove to Seattle and with his wife and, you know, started Amazon. But like, that was, yep. you know, that wasn't part of our plan. Um, nope. And so, you know, nor was eBay, nor was, you know, Yahoo or any of these other things. So um, yeah. So the Netscape moment is kind of like, okay, it's it's the moment of the arrival of permissionless innovation um, in which people can build whatever they want. And then let's say the iPhone moment is like the moment of like broad based sort of fundamental high engagement consumer acceptance, like yeah. where basically a large number of people in their personal lives just go, okay, like that's the thing and I have to have one of those and I'm going to use it all the time. And yeah. so Ben, where do, think, where do you think crypto is on, on both of those uh, uh, fronts right now?
2: So I feel like we're past the Netscape moment. And, and the reason I say this is so, and you remember, nobody remembers this but me and you, Mark, but in early 1995, IBM bought Lotus. Yep. And when they bought Lotus... For three billion dollars, um, had they instead bought every single internet company, including Netscape, Amazon, and eBay and Yahoo, yep. uh, they would have paid. They could have bought all those companies for less than they paid for Lotus. Like, so that's where it was after the Netscape moment, because yep. that was '95, which is a Netscape moment year. Um, and you know, crypto like Bitcoin's worth nearly 700 billion dollars right now (laughs) right so like i feel like crypto we're past that and people have gone a high and the, the developer energy is amazing against it right now and the, you know we just see a higher and higher caliber of developers coming in every single day on the crypto team it's it's like head spinning what's going on so i really feel like we're there um i don't think um and you know you're kind of a I would say more of a master of of consumer behavior and adoption, but I don't think we're yet at the iPhone moment um, when kind of everybody is like, okay, I have to have that. Uh, I still think it's a little, the, the world of crypto is a bit confusing to people, but I feel like it started with, you know, between NFTs, the rise of Bitcoin and what's going on in distributed finance? Well, I, I feel like we're getting close.
1: Why don't you describe? Actually, it's super hot all of a sudden. Uh, this idea mm-hmm. of NFTs, and it, as you said, it looks like this may be like one of the things that really tips this. Maybe yeah. describe for people who haven't heard of, of NFTs what they are.
2: Yeah, so it's, you know, it's a way to own something that's a digital good. So, um, which is kind of an amazing and weird concept. And it started, you know, kind of the first really popular one was this thing, CryptoKitties. <laughs> where, you know, you could uh, get these different cats and they would have properties and they could do cool things like breed with other cats and then you would get more crypto kitties. But the the thing that makes them different than just a picture of a cat on the internet is from a kind of cryptographically strong standpoint, I own it and I have one of one, just like I have one of one Bitcoin or like, uh, you know, one of one ETH. So it's mine. And I now own this good and it's a virtual good, but of course baseball cards are a virtual good. Like Honus Wagner card is worth millions of dollars, but the cardboard that it's printed on and the stale bubble gum that it came with is worth nothing. Right, <laughs> um, right. And you know, that's the same for, you know, I don't know what the canvas and the paint that Boscat used cost, but it was nothing yep. <laughs> compared to the value of his painting. And yep. so now you can do that digitally. But then you add on all these amazing digital properties. So uh, NBA Top Shot, Dapper Labs. There was a uh, LeBron James um, <laughs> dunk, <laughs> uh, which is a video. Um, you know that you can own that uh, and have the one of one card that you can then trade with your friends and all these kinds of things. And that you know went for seventy six thousand dollars. And a lot of it, you know, it's a better card than you can do on cardboard because you have the full power of computers and so forth. Uh, and they can have different properties, and so on. And you know, the art can have different properties. Uh, so it's a, it's really like a super exciting field. And you know, it's so exciting for visual artists right now because all, all of a sudden there's a whole new way to kind of share your creativity with the world and make money and and all these things. And you and a whole different kind of collector and and whatnot. So uh, you know,
1: it, it's it's really taking off. Yeah, I've been arguing, you know, people kind of people some people are you know, argue very vehemently that this thing should you know, these kinds of things either shouldn't, shouldn't work or won't work. And I'm like, well, you know, you made the point on like the paintings. I would also say even like sneakers, sneakers right, are virtual right. goods, right? Like yep, sneaker, 200 dollars pair of sneakers is like five dollars of plastic, right?
2: Five dollars of plastic, and then I don't know if they pay the Uyghurs at all, right?
1: <laughs> right, right. I'm sorry, that was a that was an all joke. <laughs> Please that's don't right. assassinate me, Chinese government. <laughs> exactly. Don't worry, they're not listening. They, they banned <laughs> yeah. us today.
2: Oh, that's right. That's right.
1: We're we're off the hook. Um. So. Um. Uh, yeah. And so, like, you know, 195 dollars of your 200 sneakers or whatever, you know, which a lot of people collect and, and, you know, a lot of people collect sneakers, don't even wear them. Um, you know, which is <laughs> like, I, I can tell you, nobody did that when I was a kid. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, not in Wisconsin. At
1: least. Not in Wisconsin. And so, so like, it's already $195 virtual good, that half was to have $5 of plastic attached. Um, yeah. and, and so I would say, and, and I would also say, look like, you know, and again, like a lot of people are cynical about this kind of thing, but it's like, look like a big part of the entire point of life, right. Is, is, is aesthetics, right? Like, Oh, yeah. the design of the thing you know the way that we live and the design of things around us and like artistic creativity right and like yeah. all that stuff is virtual like by definition it's all virtual um, yeah it's a
2: it's a, it's a feeling you, right. you know you're buying a feeling uh and right. and what's that worth
1: you know right. potentially a tremendous amount of money yep exactly and so yeah this this is the, this is the kind of thing that you know, gives at least Ben and I a lot of confidence in kind of the consumerization uh, crypto yeah. actually tip, tipping, yeah, actually, I think like basically right now, um, <laughs> yeah, certainly feels that way. Yep. Okay, good. All right. Uh, three more and see three more, and then we'll try to see if we can wrap by eight thirty or so. So, um, two, uh, related questions. So, uh, Joe, uh, uh, Fileo says, what are the great problems that today's entrepreneurs must solve? Um, and Anissa Mirza says, what are the most important startups not being built?
2: Yeah, those are such great questions. And uh, I almost feel too small to answer them. But, uh, look, I think, you know, one of the ones that we just discussed is so important, which is, um, you know, d- decentralizing everything. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's critically important for, for many reasons. Well, he- here's, here's, you know, one of the biggest, you know, decentralizing many of our kind of public and government institutions, meaning, uh, you know, our government is very centralized. And as a result, like all kind of centralized things, it's subject to kind of uh, slowness, rot, incompetence, corruption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying do away with government, but I'm saying, uh, you know, put the more power in the hands of the people to organize themselves and to make a a contribution to society um, permissionlessly, uh, because sure. right now and one of the, you know, one of the most exciting things that we see on these platforms is, you know, the ability to kind of self-organize and, you know, self-organize, agree, make contracts with each other, um, and do things, you know, from, okay, our neighborhood needs a bridge or needs, uh, you know, security, or, you know, needs a better park, or all these kinds of things. We can't do this without going through, you know, getting permission from the government today. Um, but like, we absolutely can do them. We just need a different way to organize ourselves and get to a kind of a permissionless society. And I think that's, you know, it, it's a step that we need to get to. And, and one of the most important things that I think we need to build. Um, You know, look, there's a lot of things that have to happen technologically. But when we think about the scale of society, um, you know, we're we're just running into a lot of issues um, with how big we are. You know, and it's not, I'm not saying that it's bad guys and all politicians are bad and Congress is a bunch of assholes or anything like that. I'm just saying like, we're really big. (laughs) And just like when companies get really big, like when the country gets really big and old, um, the old systems, the old processes, the old rules, uh, work much less well than when you set them up, um, and so having a way that everybody can contribute uh, to working together would be, yeah, you know, probably the most important thing for
1: for our country and for mankind. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a very broad problem statement. And so there's potentially entire industries. I mean, beyond just like many different products, there's probably many <laughs> different industries. I mean, what, what you just said. Sorry, humankind. I, I correct okay. myself. I think okay. yes. uh, I use the old language, which is definitely outdated. And you know potentially potentially animal kind, we'll, we'll, see. Yes. we'll see. what we can do. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So the the lens I would put on this is um, basically uh, I'll apply a little bit more of sort of an academic or abstract kind of framing. But um, if you you can actually go online, you can actually there's a unit of the U.S. government called the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they kind of track the economy um, really closely and really really well. Um, probably the best sort of analysis like on on the planet, and. Um, you know, they they will basically give you on their website, they'll just show you basically the, the breakdown basically the entire economy right into, into slices. Um, and what you notice if you look at that, like if you do a pie chart of like US, uh, what they call gross domestic products, so like the total output of the US economy. It's really striking what you see because you see these basically these small slices of the pie where tech is like super active and super relevant, right? And so media and entertainment, right, or like, you know, video, you know, video games, obviously, or like, you know, retail, right, um, or, you know, electronics or, um, you know, there's just like, you know, if you just kind of go down the list of the things that Silicon Valley does, like, you know, we, we, we tend to do really well in kind of those those, those smaller slices of the economy. And then there are these other things that are these just giant slices of the pie, right? Um, and, you know, the big obvious one is like healthcare. Uh, Health is one-sixth of the American economy and growing, right? And so on its current course of speed, it's going to go from one-sixth to one-fifth to one-fourth to one-third to one-half of the economy. Of course, it has the characteristic that, it, you know, many things are causing it to get that large, including the fact that nobody wants to pay for it. Um, but, um, you know, that's really big. And then there's another, you know, really big slice for education um there's another you know really big slice for housing um there's another big slice to ben's point just simply for government like for like basically just like the operations of the country um there's actually another big slice for you know basically law kind of in there um and these are these are things in which tech is either you know either somewhat present but hasn't had a huge effect or it's just basically like not present right and so you just kind of say like historically, even example historically uh, you know, pri- private homes, like private home construction, is this just gigantic industry uh, in the U.S. It's really central to people's lives. It's really central to you know what's called the American dream—the idea of like being able to own your own house, be able to raise your family there—and um, like the, you know, Silicon Valley historically has had almost nothing to do with this. Um, transportation, by the way, is another big one. Um, Silicon Valley, you know, ten years ago had almost nothing to do with transportation. Um, you know, we've really worked our way in there now. You know, sort of between like what Elon's done with with Tesla and then with self-driving cars and with, uh, you know, uh, transportation as a service, you know, with companies like Lyft. Um, and so, you know, that, that's an example where we're actually making progress, but that's, that's one that's really striking because as of 10 years ago, we, we, we really hadn't. Um, and so I think, you know, part of the process, but a big part of the opportunity for the, for the industry for the next, you know, 20 or 30 years is to go basically take on those challenges. Um, they are more complicated, right? They're very large. And so when things work in those markets, they can get very big. Um, but they are very complicated. There's, there's a reason why we're not as far along in those sectors. Um, and it's because those sectors, they're typically more complex. They, they, there are more economic issues, right. In terms of how various things are paid for, uh, you know, like with healthcare, um, there's also generally a lot more government involvement in those markets, right. A lot more regulation. Um, and so they, they are harder, but it, it is pretty clear to me that like a lot of the future of this industry ought to be in those markets and then uh, see what you think of that.
2: I totally agree. I mean, I think that's a great way to look at it is like, what are the things that we need to build everywhere where prices are going up? Right. Um, you know, and that because that's going to have the biggest impact because that's clearly where, where we haven't applied technology and things have gotten older and bigger. Um, and when things get older and bigger and you don't apply technology, they generally get much worse. Yeah. And,
1: and, much, and it's clearly much more expensive, no question. And I would also say, like, and we might spend some more time on this in another program. But I would also say, like, this issue is actually central to what's happening in our politics, and I and and that's not a statement of left or right. It's just it's actually a statement of the animation both on the left and on the right, which is basically the extent to which it feels to a lot of people in the country like their ability to live a better life than their parents did, and their ability to raise a family, and their ability to own a home, and their ability to have like high quality healthcare and high quality education. Like, you, you know, these are like fundamental markers of like basically satisfaction in life. Right for, for people and for their families at, at like a very deep level, um, and so you know those sectors right housing prices just keep rising, education prices just keep rising, healthcare prices just keep rising. To Ben's point, like those sectors generally are on a one way track of rising prices, and I and I and I think a lot of the political anxiety both on the left and the right is, is is oriented fundamentally to this. And 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 to 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 think about that, just like close your eyes and imagine that all of a sudden those three things all of a sudden started to fall in price right and and all of a sudden it's like oh wow like i can get a really good house and like it costs like 20% less than it did 5 years ago and it's going to cost like 20% less 5 years from now right and like it's these these, these this is going to be something that's like affordable for me right and it's you know same thing for like a high quality education same thing for high quality healthcare um and so you know it's like today you know today if you just track prices you know uh, you know a you know a 100 inch you know uh tv that like covers your entire wall you know, is on its way to being costing $100, right? Um, and then a four-year college degree is on its way to costing a million dollars, right? And, it, it, and, it, and it, like literally a million dollars. And it, and it kind of feels... I won't of, say
2: which I'd rather have.
1: Well, it, it kind of feels like it should be... Yes, that is that is one question. And of course, right now with COVID, they are kind of the same thing. But, um, you know, it, it it kind of feels like that should probably flip, right? Like it, it, it kind of feels like that, 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 that those are probably uh, not the directions you want to go from a societal standpoint. So, uh, we in the tech industry have work to do. Um, okay. Uh, closing question. Uh, final question. Um, what unwritten rule about, Oh, sorry. Uh, Norah Siddiqui asks, what unwritten w- rule about the world did you discover and how did you discover it?
2: So, and, and this is one, uh, that, uh, people by default hire themselves. Um and they 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 basically profile themselves and they understand themselves. And so to be good at all or even competent at doing anything with a diverse group, you have to learn to both understand talent that you don't have and um see talent that you don't have and value talent that you don't have. And that is a skill that I, I would say. Most managers never develop, and it takes a lot of development to do. And uh, I discovered it, look, just by working in organizations, and you notice, oh, (laughs) you know, there's a woman manager. She seems to have a lot of women working for her. Oh, there's an Asian manager. He seems to have a lot of Asians working for him. Oh, there's a white manager. He has a lot of white managers working for him. And it's, um, but then if you get deeper into it, they tend to have the exact backgrounds and the exact skill sets of the hiring person, which is natural. You know, I, I know what I'm good at. I can test for it in an interview. I value it highly. Um, but if you want kind of a team that can do more than what you just, you yourself can do, then you have to be able to recognize things that you can't do. And that is, I, I would just say something that um, almost nobody can do naturally. Uh, it's something that takes work and effort. And most people don't know that they need to learn it and put in the effort. Um, they think they just need to be not sexist or not racist, uh, which doesn't work by the way. Uh, you actually have to really learn it and understand it. And the the analogy I like to use for this is a football team, you know, if, uh, like if you were a wide receiver and you just can't evaluate people who weigh 300 pounds and you put everybody on the team runs really fast and is really skinny, um, then you're going to lose every football game. And I think that's, uh, The way people just don't look at other kinds of talent that way, but it's it's really kind of critical in organizational development and business and these kinds of things.
1: Good, we may we may come back to that in a future show. That is a very deep topic. Um, I would nominate two. So one, I I just I got from Steve Jobs, but I think about it all the time. um, Is um, uh, Steve once said? um, (laughs) This is a great. It's a classic Steve thing. all of the things in the world around you uh, were designed and made by people who are no smarter than you. And I've always found that to be.
2: <laughs> a very, Is that true? Well, it was. I, true I, I always feel they were more smarter than
1: me. It was. Let's just say it was true for Steve. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the, the rest, the rest of us might 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 have a might be might be pulling our, our, ourselves up for a while. Um. But, like, look, there is a lot to it. Um, there, there is a lot to it, which is basically, like, nothing that exists around us, like, just magically happened. Like, and, and, and it, it, I, I often find, like, I don't know if people have this experience. When I was a kid, it's kind of like, I always kind of have this question of, like, okay, why is it that way? Um, and then the answer was always, like, well, because it is, right? And, and then, yeah. the, you know, the next version of the answer is, like, well, because it always has been. right yep right and then it's like and and actually you know it's interesting when i was a kid it was like pre-wikipedia and it's just like okay then i'm stuck right like i'm like okay like okay that's it that's all i'm gonna find out and like if i wanted to like dig into like i don't know like you know why do chairs have four legs and not three or five or like any any question right it's like okay you know trip to the library card catalog like you know interlibrary loan like you know good luck um you know at least today (laughs) you can just literally It's one of my favorite uses for wikipedia which is like literally just like okay how did that happen <laughs> um and so right. you know the, the world has really opened up in that way but the 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 derivation of that is just like okay all, all this stuff got designed and built and then when you, when you go back and you kind of dig into like okay who did it and how did these things come come about like you know it's generally some crazy story right like it generally is yeah. not you know somebody in like a big you know research lab doing dot 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 like it's you know usually some crazy person out in the fringe somewhere who like had some crazy idea um and like that was the thing that took and and so it's it's basically like, I, the message I carried away from what he was saying is like, the world is actually a more inviting place uh, for invention and for creativity uh, yeah. than it seems, because like, literally, that's everything.
2: Oh, my, you know, my favorite book on this is the one that you recommended, The Tube. Yes. About the invention of television. And how, yes. like, wacky that was.
1: and just like, guys, it's like, trying stuff. And then all of a sudden, you hit TV. <laughs> Yeah. So I'll just give the, the yeah. brief. I love that book. So it's book, book's yeah. called tube. It's, it's uh, like an MIT history series or something. It's, um, but like, yeah, the, the the legend of TV, you know, is there was this guy Philo Farnsworth in San Francisco in like the 1920s who just like figured it out. And that was that, but it, but it actually turns out there was like this 50 year backstory. Um, they, they basically started working on TV right, right around the time they got the telegraph to work. So is you know, kind of around that time period, 1860s, 1870s, there were just like a bunch of crazy people who just had this idea that says, well, you know, you know, we can do sound, you know, that radio, you know, they had radio starting to work, they had telegraph starting to work, and so it's like, well, we could do pictures, and then <laughs> but like they didn't have anything, they didn't have any, they didn't have any, <laughs> that was it. yeah, that was all that started with that idea. Like, they didn't <laughs> have like indoor, yeah. you know, this is a time where they didn't have indoor lighting yet, right? And yeah. so, the 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 extent to which some of these people spent like decades of their life, like, there's this guy that he goes through the whole story of this guy, I think a Scottish guy, um, and he literally invented and actually deployed analog television. Um, sorry, that, that's not right. Mechanical television. Um, yeah. like, uh, television is a mechanical device. So imagine like no tube, you know, for, forget even flat screens, like no CRT, no tube, no nothing. Like, and he literally, it was like spitting blocks. It was like a television yeah. made out of Legos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that, that different than Charles Babbage's yeah, yeah, yeah. original computer, which is like a computer made out of wood powered by steam. Yeah, exactly. And so he had this thing. It would literally sit and it would spin these blocks that had different colors on them to show images. You know, it's like a 32 by 32 grid or something like that. And like the thing is sitting there all chunking away, spinning the things. And he got it to work. Um, (laughs) And he took it to to the BBC, which owned all the spectrum in the UK at that time. And he said, please, could I have a slot where I could like test this thing? Um, And, you know, of course, they thought he was like completely out of his mind. Um, and then they finally gave him, I think, if I recall correctly, the Thursday night and midnight slot for 15 minutes.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. That was right. It's Thursday midnight.
1: <laughs> to, <laughs> which, is like a, which is what they gave like rap music, by the way, <laughs> when it started <laughs> out, too. Exactly. And of course, BBC is like, yeah, look, you can have the slot. And then if there's any consumer demand, we'll expand it. Right. Yeah. And It's like, OK, consumer demand, number one for this crazy mechanical television, but number two at Thursday night at midnight. Right. Like, you know, thank thank you so much, you know, BBC overlords. Um, and so and this is like, you know, what, 20 years or something before fellow Farnsworth got his thing to work or like, a, it made, you know, something like a decade or something like that. So so anyway, the point being is like there there are these backstories to these things where like they were genuinely new. Um, and and by the way, look, like, you know, a lot of people don't pull this off. Like a lot of people, you know, a lot of people are, are this guy and not not Philo Farnsworth. But like the thing actually had to get built. It took like a huge amount of invention and creativity to do it. Um, it ended up having a big history, you know, obviously a big impact on history, but like it, it, you know, this, this was something that people volunteered into, like th- there was never like a program, right. There was never like a national, I don't know, a national science foundation for television or something at that point that decided that this was going to exist. Um, yeah. Yeah. and so anyway, the, 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 whole, the whole world kind of works like that. So actually we're past eight thirty. Um, why don't we leave it there? Benjamin, thank you for joining me yes. uh, for
2: the no. for the first okay. trial. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And, and a special thanks to everybody who submitted questions on Twitter. Um, they were amazing. And the ones we didn't get to today, we will get to. Yes, absolutely.
1: 100%. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night. Okay, thank you. So welcome back. Uh, welcome back. This is the second uh, show of One on One with A&Z, um, which, as I said uh, last time, is a, a show that we are uh, starting and running weekly Mondays um, at this time to uh, uh, basically in the, in the, in the model of something Andy Grove used to do, uh, which in his, in his, in his era was a newspaper column in our area era clubhouse room. Um, and, uh, so we are going to, um, uh, read a bunch of questions proposed by, uh, uh, folks on Twitter. Um, and then we will answer them and then argue about the answers. Until um, <laughs> probably around midnight, um, uh, we—I uh, have to say that uh, once again uh, this week uh, the quality of the questions is extraordinary. Um, so uh, we have no shortage of great questions. We've picked out 11 of the best questions, um, and we're uh, queuing up all the others for for future shows. But I would say the, the the questions are guaranteed to be fantastic, and then we'll 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 see about the answers. So let's dump. uh, Let's let's dive straight into the deep end of the pool, um, and let's start off with kind of the most serious of the questions, perhaps, and then kind of work our way, hopefully, up up a little bit in terms of cheerfulness. Uh, But this is a a really, I think, important question and a a really profound question for for this year, um, as sort of COVID drags on. So um, Ashley uh, asks. Ben says, "Quote: Layoffs break trust." Uh, A third of people in San Francisco have filed for unemployment, and a lot of that is tech companies having to restructure and scale back at the end of 2020 due to COVID struggles. How does Ben view the long-term traumatic impact of this period? Yeah, that's a great question.
2: It actually reminds me me of my career during the dot-com bubble and a lot of layoffs and and trauma in that sense. So that does have differences. So let me kind of start with um, just why… And it's obvious, but but I think it's subtle as well as why layoffs break trust. Because when you're a CEO, you kind of you know look people are nice to you because you're the boss, and um, you can take that too far in your mind, thinking they really like you, and maybe they don't like you as much as you think they do. And then when you do a layoff, that gets tested in severe ways. So, like a layoff is a breaking of trust because you literally broke the promise. You know when you hire people you tell them this is going to be a great company. It's going to be awesome. You're going to have fun here. Your career is going to advance. And then all of a sudden you're firing people and sending them home. And a lot of CEOs will make the mistake while saying, well, you know, we laid off, you know, maybe we laid off people who we didn't really need or didn't really want. And that may be true, but those people um, who you laid off are closer to people in your company that are staying than they are to you um, often. And in every case, I mean, there's no way you're closer to every employee than, than anybody else is. And so the people who stay, you know, you're going to lose trust with them because they're friends who so they respected and liked and so forth get laid off. So you've got this huge kind of uh, trust crisis, so to speak. And the reason why that's so fundamentally bad is that trust is the kind of essential ingredient of any culture of any organization. And the reason is trust is so highly related to communication, right? And that if I trust you entirely, you barely have to talk to me because I know whatever you do is going to be in my best interest. And I trust that it's the right thing. And if I trust you not at all, then you can talk to me all day long. And I'm not going to hear a word you say, because I don't trust you. And in an organization that's detrimental to have a communication breakdown like that and a trust breakdown like that. And and you kind of hear, um, you know, like if you follow football, you always hear, well, you have to trust the system. Like the players will say, you have to trust the system. And the reason is, okay, if I don't trust my teammates, then if they don't do what they're supposed to do, then it doesn't matter what I do. And therefore it doesn't, you know, and as soon as it doesn't matter what I do, then you have chaos. And that's very true in a company and very true in, in a military organization and anything. And so, you know, when you have layoffs, the first thing to do is is you've gotta start to the day you do the layoff, you have to start work on rebuilding trust, on making sure that everything that you say is true at that moment, that uh, you're restoring honesty and so forth. Um and you and you do the layoff in the right way. And I, you know, I've spoken a lot about this in, in writing and so on, but you know, if you're in that situation where you're doing a layoff, just know that it's gonna be the end of your company if you don't start rebuilding the trust and the faith in the in the organization in a real way that day. Um, it's exacerbated in COVID. And this is something I've noticed uh, kind of in our own firm is that kind of face-to-face <laughs> is a natural free trust builder. Like mm-hmm. it's basically like if I'm with you and I can see you and I can see your intentions um, and you know if I can you know shake your hand or give you a hug or touch it, like that's that 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 creates trust in a way that's almost impossible to do on video. it's It's actually the one thing that I, uh, and so you know so you have that problem on top of it. So I think that you know any leader uh, right now has to be thinking very hard about okay, How can you how can you create trust? How can you maintain trust? Um, How can you rebuild trust? You know, coming out of this, particularly if you stay remote, um, because that you know it's such a fundamental underpinning of
1: everything that you're going to do. So, well, let me ask you two questions. So, first of all. Um, you know, when the dot-com crash happened, you know, there was the, I would say, widespread view <laughs> that it was the fault of the tech companies. Yeah. Um, right? Uh, it was, like, our fault. Um, when, um, you know, the financial crisis happened, it was, you know, the fault of the banks. Yes. Um, You know, when a company.
2: <laughs> which, which was, I think, I feel like it, it wasn't more true with the banks, but what was true with the banks is they actually risk. Our money, meaning taxpayers, whereas we just yeah. risk our investors' money. Which you know, as a VC, like we know that we knew the job was dangerous when we took it.
1: Like that yeah. seems more fair. But anyway, yeah, we're still uh, we're still waiting for the tech bailout <laughs> yeah. from uh, from two thousand. Um, uh, and then um, you know, when it, when a company gets into trouble by itself, you know, it has a whatever bad product release or something. You know, it, it you know it, it blames itself or it blames its executives or its CEO. But it's like it's pretty clearly somebody's fault. Covid is, you know, Covid's different, right? Cuz Covid's like at least in theory like Covid's nobody's fault. Um and, you know, it's like a, you know, it's like it's oh quite God. literally after God, you know, kind of territory. And so I guess yeah. the question is, does the fact that, that COVID is anybody's fault, does that make any of this easier? Or does this just, does that really actually not matter because we're talking about people's lives and that's just actually not a factor?
2: Well, there's a couple of things on that, though. One is um, not every company is laying off. Uh, yep. So if you're doing the layoff, you know, and particularly I see this in like software, like SaaS. So like it's one thing, you're a travel company and that kind of thing. That's a little, maybe you get a little more of a pass. But let's say you're like a SaaS software company, um, but you know the way, you know your your stage of development, you know your way of selling, so forth. You're going to have to do a layoff. There are a lot of SaaS companies that didn't do layoffs, uh, so yep. you know at that point you are going to take the blame. And then the other thing that happens in a layoff is you end up laying off some of the wrong people if you're big enough. <laughs> um, right. And yep. I'll just give you an example. Like I laid off, uh, and and it and it kills things. So. Eric Vishria, who's a a great partner at Benchmark Capital now, and used to work for me at Opsware. I laid off uh, a really good friend of his, who was one of the smartest guys in our company, by accident. Like I didn't lay him off directly, but he was laid off. Um, And you know, I had known Eric since he was 19 years old, and he had been working for me for years. And he was so mad at me, he was you know ready to quit over that. Um, And that didn't have anything to do with the fact we did the layoff. It had to do with the fact that we laid off the wrong guy. And you know, so you 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 do have those kinds of issues as well. Yep.
1: And then let me outline a scenario. So I I don't like after the last year, I don't want to predict anything anymore for the rest of my life. Um, (laughs) The world is apparently getting very strange. But um, let me lay out a scenario for what follows, kind of COVID. And I I think there's actually pretty I think pretty good odds of this scenario, which which basically is like okay. Like we've, we've passed through this like one-way door where we now realize, like we we being CEOs and investors, like we now realize that it's possible to structure and run companies differently than we all thought. Um, yeah. And we know that, you know, remote work is a lot more viable than we thought. And then that opens up, you know, all kinds of questions um, around, you know, where should our workforces be located? And some of that is employee driven because they want to move. And some of that is like, well, you know, like a lot of my friends who are like CEOs in New York, they're like, oh. Like I don't need all these back office people in New York anymore. Like I can move them to like Minnesota or something, and it's and it's, it's going to be actually just fine. I didn't know I could do that, and now I can like you know save our shareholders a lot of money by doing that. By the way, I can create a lot of jobs in you know places that maybe don't have them. Um, yeah. And so, so there's all that, and then there's just like basically this sense I think among CEOs or there there will be that basically is like COVID is to some extent a get out of jail free card for doing anything you want to do to restructure your company. In a way yep. that maybe you were always thinking about, but you know, maybe you would have thought would be too, you know, too traumatic or or, or, or dramatic. Um, yes. and, and so there's a real scenario coming out of this that a lot of companies are going to go through a you know really like dramatic level of restructuring and change that will yeah. result in you know potentially a lot of you know what well, you say geographic movement of jobs, but the thing with, with, with when jobs move geographically is the people you know people don't usually move en mass, right? And so you end, you end up cutting jobs in one place and adding jobs somewhere else and then there will be companies that simply like don't hire back right they'll just be like okay yeah. now's a chance to like replace you know 5000 people you know customer service people with software right and we can just basically say like this is all part of the restructuring we're doing after covid and so so it feels like we're going to go into a period where there's going to be a lot of change in the economy yeah. and 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 in jobs and then the, the the good side of that is like <laughs> academically like basically that should that should that should lead to like really rapid productivity growth in the economy and that's good because that should lead to economic growth and wage growth and so forth like in general that this is like an economically healthy thing in terms of the, the growth rate of the economy but in the process like a lot of people's lives w- will get disrupted and so yes. i i guess going to be curious like what you know we've we been going you know, kind of mess- through that a yeah. lot you know with
2: with um you know kind of technological change i would say over the last 25 years um so then this is an accelerant even on that
1: yeah, so you know, as a you know, sort of as a CEO yourself, and then as somebody who talks to and advises a lot of CEOs, yeah. like how how do you you know how do you think you know given the opportunity that they will use in front of them, like how should they think this through?
2: Yeah, so look, I think you have to embrace the future, um, and and like a really simple analogy that that as you know, I, I use around the firm is, look when when Google introduced free lunch, <laughs> like right. I don't care if you think free lunch is good or bad. At some point, you had to offer free lunch because you couldn't hire anybody because everybody expects free lunch, right? Like, and so you can't, you know, hide from the future if you're a CEO. And if people are offering work from home and and kind of changing their business and making it more efficient, like you can't stick your head in the sand on that. You have to really understand it and look at it and see if uh, it's going to give you competitive advantage or disadvantage. And one of the things that really, you know, kind of knocked me on the ground when I heard it because it 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 convinced me so much that you have to you know that that work from home is a real real thing that we're never going to get away from because it's very important is uh, a lot of the young women who work for us said "Look, this is the first time in my life that I've been able that I felt like I could have a career and be a mother and be good at both and so like that's that's a much bigger thing than, you know, a commute or anything else. And so now, you know, you, you are in a new world. And so I think the first thing is you've got to embrace the new world and you have to understand it. And you have to, you know, as, as uh, our friend Cheryl Sandberg would say, you have to lean into it and not run away from it. Um, having said that, you know, as a leader, I think that things that are kind of there's categories of things that are kind of unknown, unsolved um, in this kind of new environment, you know, trust and loyalty, particularly if you hit a crisis, like if everything is going well in the company, you can get away with bad culture, bad management, a lot of bad things. But when you hit a situation where like a competitor gets the better of you, or, um, you know, you're in a tough position, then all these things matter tremendously. So. Kind of getting out and and really understanding, okay, how is career development different how is how are people's feelings about our organization different um and what can we do to make those optimal in the new work environment? I think are critically important questions, and if you ignore them you, you'll you'll it'll run through your fingers as soon as you hit a crisis a so good so it, it's funny George Tennant our friend George Tennant every time I saw him at Allen Company would say to me. About Trump, because at at the time (laughs) was when we were still going to Allen Company, because there was no COVID. um, Look, things were going like reasonably okay in the country. There were a lot of like he'd say a lot of crazy stuff, but it it wasn't really like a it it didn't kind of melt down the whole country. But what George used to always say is like just wait till there's a crisis, then we're we're going to be totally screwed because this guy just says crazy shit all the time, and you know like in a crisis it's going to be problematic. And I think that um, (laughs) that's kind of like what this is. Like, I I don't think it matters unless there is a real crisis, but in a crisis, it's going to be the only thing that matters.
1: Yeah. A friend of mine observed, he's like, you know, like up until now to like, you know, either fire somebody or to quit, um, you know, it was always like a thing, right. Cause you're like in the office, it's like, you know, the secret meetings in the conference rooms, it's like, you know, somebody's actually going to leave. They have to pack up their desk. It's like, you know, yeah. you have to say goodbye to everybody, right? It's like there's all this shame, right? It's like this yeah. whole thing, oh, yeah. right? And so, my friend observed, he's like, "Okay, if all the meetings are going to be on Zoom, <laughs> on Zoom, then you just log off Zoom one day, right? And you log in a different Zoom the next day, and you know, it's a different set it's of faces."
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, that's and, a really good point, also in terms of kind of what I spoke about earlier, right? So then maybe your peers don't care about you as much either. Right, they're fine. You got fired. Yeah. You're not a, really my friend. I only knew you on video. Right. <laughs> it's not like we had a beer or something. Right. that, that, that that's a, that's an interesting point. I, I think that's I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, yeah. There's this and, concept
1: in uh, there's this concept in psychology of the it's called the, the parasocial relationship. Um yeah. And so it's it's the it's sort of the friendship actually. It's actually the worst feeling people like feel for celebrities they don't know, but it's basically this idea of like it feels like it's a relationship but it's not
2: yeah mm-hmm. right. <laughs> yep.
1: yeah 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 no that that's right, <laughs> that's right
2: <laughs> it uh it definitely cuts both ways i mean it's an interesting it's it's a very interesting observation, and then you know, and maybe you just have to get like a thousand times better at training and onboarding because you know the workforce is going to be even more fluid than it is now,
1: right, right, exactly. Um, okay, good. Uh, well we can come back to people have you know feedback on that. This is obviously a critically important topic. So feel free to um ask more follow-up questions on Twitter. Um, and we'll continue to uh, to talk about it in the weeks ahead. Um so uh, second question, um Zeng Tan asks, what is something first-time founders, especially ones who haven't had prior startup experience, miss in which they could course correct earlier? Hmm. And I have a I have a big <laughs> uh, nominated, nomination on this one, but uh, Ben I'll, I'll let you go first and then I'll follow.
2: You know, I can tell you the one that every single one of them misses. Um is, and it's a psychological trick. So basically you're a first-time founder, you become CEO. Um, you don't know how to do the job because it's not a job that you know how to do intuitively. Nobody does. Um, but yet you're CEO <laughs> and you're recruiting everybody in. So you're supposed to know how to do the job. And so that kind of psychological paradox stops you from really doing the real work to learn how to do the job, <laughs> meaning ask uh, the right people the right questions at the right time so that you can come up the learning curve faster. And I'll tell you where this manifests itself always is in executive hiring. Um, we don't have, I don't think we have a single founder that like went out and aced executive hiring like their first time through it. You know, everybody makes tons of mistakes and has to fire all their execs and rehire them. And the reason is, hey, you've not been CFO. You've not been head of HR but here you are hiring it you don't even know what the job is <laughs> you know you're out there like hiring a japanese interpreter you don't speak japanese and you're not getting any help and you're acting like you know how to do it because you think you're a ceo which you are but you aren't really <laughs> and so the right kind of the right answer to that is you know really get some help get trained up on like what is that job you know what do good do you know what's the difference between a good cfo and a great cfo through the mouth of an actual CFO, um, like how do you go about learning all those things? And almost every first time founder, there's a whole class of things around that, that they screw up, but, but it's all comes from that same point of, I'm really supposed to know how to do this, but I don't. So rather than ask somebody and reveal myself, I'm going to just go ahead and screw it up. And then of course in Silicon Valley, there are many, many advisors who give advice uh, despite the fact that they have no idea what they're talking about, so that that exacerbates it as well. But but they always sound confident, <laughs> always confident. <laughs> They've heard it from somebody who knew, right? Like it's like a
1: third-hand weird type of thing. Yes. So the thing I would nominate, and I've been—I'll be curious what you think of this. The thing I would nominate is it goes to the nature of the relationship with mm-hmm. the co-founders. Ah, um, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> so this this is a separate thing than than what Ben was talking about. But although they, I, I made that mistake
2: myself. You know. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. <laughs> no, you um, so much. Yes, well, <laughs> there's still time. Um, so, um, so, and basically, there's two scenarios here. So, scenario number one is you're a sol- you're a solo founder, um, and yeah. you know I think there are certain people who can do that. Um, I don't think I could do it. And I, and I, in fact, I never have, and I would not want to, um, just because like doing it by yourself, like I, I you know, kind of, it goes actually to some stuff Ben you were talking about, which is like to not have anybody to talk to who's like in the same, you know, in the same, in the same boat with you, um, you know, with all the same knowledge, like to have to like have all that pressure just be on you, um, seems intense. Yeah, you, so anyway, I, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, and you can wind off track very fast. Um, right. Because you don't have somebody to
1: calibrate. Yep. Yeah so you're you're like living in your head right yeah exactly you're like having all these debates with yourself and you're under incredible pressure um and so that that's a it's a it's a it's it's really tough and of course this is one of the reasons why people then have multiple founders so then the multiple founder thing, basically, um, the way I think about uh, I guess, uh, give a con- the conclusion first and then explain why. So the, the conclusion is as follows, which is like, I've had many, many conversations with like founding teams where they're very, very worried about, you know, who's going to be on their board. And they're very, very worried that the VCs are going to like judge them and fire them. And like, you know, and every, and every once in a while that happens. And there are, you know, some, some famous stories of that happening in the history of the Valley, yeah. uh, but they're very worried about that, what they're. Never worried about is them turning on each other, <laughs> um, <laughs> which happens quite a bit. Which happens quite a bit, yeah. and and you know if you're if you're in our job, basically what you see is the ratio of this is like a hundred to one or something, right? Yeah. Or maybe it's more. Maybe it's like five hundred to one or a thousand to one. Which is like when 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 there's a when there's a traumatic event at the top of the company that affects the founders, it's virtually always the founders turning on each other, um, yeah. and it is it is almost never the investors or the or the board members. Um, and so it's like, okay, like, you know, why can that be? And, and, and then, of course, the thing that you do is you basically like, you you have this conversation with the founders and, and they, and ev- in every single case, they assure you that won't happen to them. Right. Because like, you know, they're, you know, they've, they've been, you know, they've, they've known each other since age six, you, you know, they've, they've like, you know, been best friends forever.
2: Although, the, those ones do better than the ones that, uh, you know,
1: met at Y Combinator or that kind of thing. I have to say. Right. Yeah, the more yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. The, the more recent ones are the, the shotgun weddings where somebody said, oh, you, t- you two yeah. should team up. Or somebody said, you know, or even worse, to get funding, you have to go find a co-founder. And then you, <laughs> right, yeah. and do it on the fly. <laughs> yep. And, and so then it's like, and, and, and basically it's like, okay, well, why does this happen, right? And I would say, like, I don't know, Ben, what you would say, but it maybe is like, I don't know, half of successful companies or something. There's like a founder schism or maybe more.
2: Hey, yeah, I mean, well, if you look at kind of just Silicon Valley, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> just pick any big company and go well where is the other founder like w- where yep. is larry ellison's co-founder mm-hmm. what happened to all the co-founders at facebook you know like
1: yep. we're w- all of yeah, things. why didn't yeah, why didn't Paul El- it's actually funny, you know, and yeah, El- El- never go yeah. right. Why didn't he ever go back to Microsoft after he you know he actually got better and like went on to have like quite a life and like why didn't you go, you know, he's on <laughs> but he didn't go back? And he-, he explained that in that book, you know, like he heard him talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> Paul Paul was so mad at Bill. <laughs> Paul was so mad at Bill um for a story that he tells in the book, which is an amazing story, yeah. that he literally held yeah. the story for 30 years before he wrote it in a book, and then he published it in the book without giving um the Microsoft people any any advance warning. Um, yeah. He was so, he was so excited to have his revenge, um, so so that's like a great example. So it's just like okay, like there's these founder splits all over the place, and then it's like okay, well, why is that? And it, my view on that is the reason it's just because like it's just it's just flat out the pressure, right? It's just like okay, you you might have known somebody, you know, hopefully for longer than a month or a year, but like you know, you've been in various circumstances together, but you haven't started a company before. Um, and then you're in this like incredibly high pressure, you know, hothouse, you know, kind of situation in which like things really start bearing down. And then that's when you start to discover things about each other, right? And so you start to discover things about level of commitment, you start to discover things about work ethic, you start to just, you know, discover things about responsibility, conscientiousness, you start to discover things about like emotional control, um, you start to discover, you know, loyalty issues. Um, and all of a sudden, oh, and then the other thing that happens, right, is like there's like, there's there's often like a, a big competence difference, right? And so like one yeah. founder will turn yeah, yeah, out yeah. to just be like a lot more competent, or or, yep. or even let's, let's let's even use a different word, scalable. Um, yep. Where you know one founder is the CEO, they're scaling with the company. You know the investors are just putting huge amounts of effort in trying to make sure the CEO scales. You're building the team around the CEO, and the other founders are like, you know, wait a minute, like what's happening here? You know, what about me? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they're often getting side, you know, kind of sidelined in the process. And so, so it's just, it's basically just like, okay, like th- this is something that is really worth thinking through. And I guess what I would say is like, I, I don't know if I've ever actually met a founding team that has really thought this through. Um, and then I have, I so far I have an exact, I would say hundred percent failure rate at convincing people how important this is. Um, yep. and, and by the way, the, the tip off on how, and how the tip off on of my failure rate actually is that. Um, it's, it goes to founder vesting, um, yeah. which is founders really ought to like revest their stock, like frankly, as often as they can. Um, and in my in my view, or at least like at the time of like raising venture capital, I mean, uh, the right? Because right.
2: yeah, they always feel burned when one of them walks
1: away and the other one's building the company. Oh, people get <laughs> yeah, so yeah. mad. I, I mean, it is yeah. it is you'll you'll have one founder who literally walks away with just a giant amount of money for you know in retrospect doing yeah. very little work and that person is just absolutely furious because they feel like you know they got iced out of the company and, and they're they're missing out on the glory and then you've got this the founder ceo who's still running the company who's just furious that there's this person out there who's made all this money and continues to continues to make money every day right based yep. on based on work that he's not doing and yeah, well, so, we've had
2: so many yeah. of those conversations because it's usually the ceo that remains and the ceo usually goes why am I getting more stuck? my co-founder left not doing anything and has the same stock as me. <laughs> like I've heard that, yeah. I've heard
1: that at least a dozen times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the, the and, and you 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 would think it's like the emotion of this. It's like, don't these people have like enough going on? And isn't there like enough real work to do? And like, isn't it, shouldn't people be happy that they're successful? And this is the kind of thing where it just like, it gnaws at you like so deeply. And, and, and especially like yeah. under pressure, like this is the kind of thing, it's like the burr in the saddle where it's just like. Argh. Yeah, so no. You, it,
2: it's a big one, for sure. Well, you know, it reminds me of the, what you talked about is kind of, there. there's a great line, um, I forgot which samurai book, but basically with the samurai kind of in the code was, in ordinary times, matters of character cannot be determined. But when something happens, all is revealed. And that kind of gets at the thing. It's like they, they join each other in ordinary times. They don't know, you know, you, you don't know the integrity the honesty the courage of your co-founder at that point yep. then you get married then you divide up the company then something happens and then you find out who the real person that you founded the company was is
1: and it, it's it's difficult yep exactly and so <laughs> I, I would say for first time founders uh tread very carefully if you're going to do it yourself and tread very carefully, if you're going to do it with somebody else. Um, and and this stuff like matter. this stuff matters, like this stuff matters so much during the process of then all the work that follows. So this stuff, uh, will definitely have a big,
2: actually, you know, one of the best things that ever happened to us is like, we had like a pressure incident when we were raising the a round. And I think that, that, that helped the company get through like some of the horrible shit, um, Hmm. you know, that, just because, right. you know, we had something happen. So that kind of revealed a little bit about who each other were. If if that hadn't happened, like we wouldn't have been tested so early. Yeah, it might good have point. been a lot different, right? So we have
1: something to thank that guy for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we won't name names today. No, no, that's right. <laughs> um so, uh, all right. Next question, uh, and actually, it's uh, somewhat related. So, uh, uh, Vinnyak Renade asks: Is there any observable difference between founders of one billion versus ten billion versus hundred billion dollar uh, market cap companies? You know, sort of, let's say, you know, kind of by, by venture standards, small, medium, and large outcomes, um, independent of externalities like market slash speed of adoption slash killer talent and the exec team. So, so specifically, differences in the founders. You know the
2: the CEOs that, that we've worked with, who have had the really big outcomes, um, you know, be it, uh, Todd McKinnon or Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, kind of across different kinds of things. So there are like the common things are just unlimited determination and, um, extreme courage i i would say like those are the two like character traits that they both have there are other things like founder velocity and this and that and the other but to kind of get to really big you have to one you have to walk away from a lot of money many times so you know that takes uh, like a tremendous amount of determination to do that and then um you have to yeah you you just have to like be Willing to walk through trem- and the an unbelievable amount of pain along the way, so th- th- those are kind of the character things, at least mm-hmm. that I noticed. Um, you know, they there's sort other of like talent-wise, and you know how brilliant they are, and how great the ideas are, are. Are of course huge factors in how what the outcome is. Yep.
1: So I agree with that. And then the thing I would nominate um, that's in addition to that, the thing I would nominate is I think it's it's the ability of the C- the, the CEO, the founder CEO, to calibrate. The importance of direct control um, versus building an organization that can scale, um, and I, I guess what I would say is like the the, the most advanced founders, my, mm. my view anyway, is that uh-huh, yeah. what they, you know, the most advanced the most advanced founders of CEOs. Like their their attitude, basically. Well, it actually goes to actually goes to something Andy Grove said in his book, which is the the output of a manager is the output of his organization. Um, and so the, the the sort of company version of this is, you know, the the, the company is the, the company is the extension of the CEO. Like, it, it just focusing for a moment on the CEO, like the yeah. the company is like an extension of the CEO's ability to like get things done um, yep. and have things and have things happen. Um, and so the CEOs who think, I would say, very kind of broadly and expansively about what it means to build an organization that can scale in order to get more and more done, where the CEO doesn't have to be in the room um you know yeah. is it, it, it's, it's, it's it's definitely a requirement for the, for the large outcomes like you have to do that at some point um yeah. and then i guess yeah. i'd say you know founders th- there are founders who, where the companies clearly have that potential where they just they for whatever reason they feel like that's just too i don't know if it's too much of a threat or a challenge or what it is but like they kind of feel like they need to have too much control in the moment and they can't quite ever let that happen
2: yeah that characteristic is is a tricky one to develop because um you have to be in order to do what you're saying you both have to be okay with like things being broken in the organization because they're, you're letting them out of your control. So you're going to have things that are embarrassing to you that are kind of bad, but then at the same time, you have to be extremely urgent about getting all those fixed. Um, so it's that balance of not uh, basically stretching yourself out so thin because you have to review every, stupid word and everything. And you have to, you know, like uh, rewrite people's code and do all these kinds of things that, that that people feel the need to do um, at at the extreme micro level. Um, But at the same time, you have to really care about kind of pushing things forward and getting them better. And that's difficult psychologically, because Mm -hmm. if you can't take the fact that things aren't good, like, most people are either happy-go-lucky, like, okay, it's fine, everything's broken, and I don't care, and that's terrible, or they're, like, so incensed about it that they are too controlling, and they don't, uh, they, they're they not able to grow the organization effectively.
1: Yeah. Right, and then you get this thing where it's like, there's there's just clearly more potential, but it's like the company just simply can't get to it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah look, there's, there's a lot of things that are really important and amazing to do, and you're just not going to do them. <laughs> right, and right. That, look, it's, uh, and that's usually the best choice you make is to walk away from a real opportunity because there's a bigger one that you're working on.
1: Yeah. Um, yep. Okay. Um, all right. Next question. Um, uh, so our friend, Louis Anslow asks, um, how do you think about neuroatypical founders? Um, is ADHD, which is, I think it's uh, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, considered a net positive or a liability? Uh, something to be managed and worked around um, or something to be balanced out uh, with a more neurotypical co-founder. And I would, I would extend the question from ADHD also, of course, to, uh, uh, you know, sort of the Asperger's uh, or the autistic spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Which is... yeah.
2: yeah. So this is, um, you know, I, it is a kind of topic I've spent a lot of time on because, you know, I've got an autistic daughter. So um, the, the whole kind of the, the way, like, I think one model to, or way to look at this is, you know, there's a kind of a distribution of nervous systems, um, and then you do have, you know, in that distribution, there are ones that are very deviant, that are a few standard deviations off the norm, or and so forth in various ways, and um, you know, certainly autism is is a uh, is <laughs> is pretty, uh, you know, kind of off the mean. Um, but interestingly, genius is also way off the mean. And there's a lot of, you know, there's there's been much written about kind of overlapping characteristics. So, you know, they they're you know, for years everybody talked about Bill Gates' kind of Asperger's autistic kind of tendencies from rocking to, you know, his messy hair and all those kinds of things. And um, you know, Einstein was known for continuing to put the spoon in his mouth long after the cereal was gone and that kind of thing. And Van Gogh cut off his ear and gave it to his girlfriend, which if you work with, you know, uh, special needs kids, you know, that's very inappropriate social behavior. Uh, So, you know, all these kinds of things um, that, you know, we would consider to be maybe a mental health issue or or something atypical are also kind of present in people's nervous systems who see the world differently, who have some special kind of genius. And so for us as investors, um, you know, that kind of thing, we'd never rule somebody out on that, uh, in that, like, if they are a genius, they may very well be manic, they may have ADHD, they may have all these things. But then there is a follow-on question, which is, can they function? Are they functional? Um, you know, can they, and particularly can they function in the context of an organization and, uh, look, that's a high bar and, you know, many people who have those conditions, you know, can't, and it's not for them. Um, so it's not automatic that, you know, we see somebody who's, uh, you know, bipolar and we go, okay, we're definitely giving you know, her, all our money. Cause she's going to be amazing. She may be Elon Musk. She may be amazing, but she, she may also like be impossible to work for. And so it, it's, uh, you, you know, there's not an easy answer, but I would just say that, you know, like people with deviant nervous systems are, are special in our society. And, you know, like some of them can make great contributions and some of them, you know, we need to take care of, but, uh, but one thing we definitely don't want to do is, you know, use CRISPR to eliminate some of these conditions because they uh, right. contribute amazingly to moving us forward.
1: Right. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that maybe is happening you know, cult- culturally, you know, there historically, there was a lot of shame and still is associated with, you know, a lot of mental mental conditions, including including these. Um, uh, mm-hmm. You know, and they were sort of you know, considered to be things not to talk, not to be talked about or to be hidden away. Um, you know, this the stigma, it feels like the stigma is coming off over time. Um, yeah. and in fact you, you do run into more people who basically are, you know, you, you run into people all the way all the way on the other side where like they they you know sort of are very happy to announce it. Um, mm-hmm. and then just a lot of people who are just more open about it. Um and so you know it may be the kind of it may be the kind of thing that is gonna be, get easier to discuss, um, and then also as a consequence, like easier to deal with and, and easier to help people with. Yeah,
2: you know, our our friend, the late Bernard Tyson, was really good on this topic where he, he said, like the name mental health is a dumb idea, like it should right. just be health um because how is mental health different than and it affects physical health and by calling it mental health, we stigmatized it and right. uh and that's that's really been kind of the dumbest thing right. that we did is stigmatize mental health. not not only um you know is it it's treatable in many ways, but also sometimes it's a huge advantage so uh, yeah it's great. We're making progress there.
1: Yeah. And then a book I actually have, I haven't read the book, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, there's a, there's a researcher that probably the world's leading autism researcher, his name is Simon Baron Cohen. So B A R O N C O H E N. Um, and, uh, his, his son, by the way, is Ali G, um, or Borat, <laughs> although, uh, fortunately Simon is a lot more serious. Simon's a lot more serious <laughs> than his son. Um, uh, and, uh, he, he just, he's written a number of books on, on, on autism and the autistic spectrum. And he just wrote a book called the pattern seekers um and he he actually tells sort of the historical story that ben was referencing and he sort of he goes apparently the thesis of the book he's kind of goes through history showing how you know a large number of the people who like really move civilization forward over the last few thousand years are people who were you know somewhere on the autistic spectrum or had these 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 various issues Mm -hmm. um so anyway i i haven't read it i've heard it's great um so for people who are interested i would i would recommend that um Okay, let's see. All right. Okay, good. Uh, Okay, change the topic different, uh, different topic, um, uh, different domain. So uh, Palak uh, Zatakia asks, views on text versus audio versus video content consumption and creation patterns, and how the world read internet will change in each of these three, uh, three directions. And of course, this is like a very relevant question. You know, this is a very relevant question just because you know we live in a world saturated, obviously, with media, and there's all these controversies around you know social media and you know streaming and you know video and all these things over the last decade. Um and then of course here we are in Clubhouse, right? Which is like a you know essentially a brand new medium, you know, that kind of you know borrows from you know everything from you know conference calls to to talk shows, but like is is it's fundamentally a new dynamic. Um and so like where where is this all headed? And so let me advance a thesis, and I, I will say I, I'm, I'm shamelessly ripping this thesis off from somebody who's in the room, and in fact, it's actually in the top row of the room, um, Antonio, friend Antonio, um, uh, that basically uh, borrows on work done by media researchers like 60, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, including Marshall McLuhan and this guy named uh, Walter Ong, who did this did this mm-hmm. sort of very interesting work on this topic. Where he basically, the thesis basically is that there's there's sort of two kinds of cultures um, in terms of how media intersects culture and sort of, you know, potentially determines culture or determines the shape of culture. He said there's sort of two kinds of cultures. There's oral culture uh, or what he calls orality. Um, and then there's literary culture or literate culture. Um, and so, and, and, think of, and think of this historically, think of this historically as, you know, there were people way before there was writing, right. Um, and there were people way before there was math, Right. You know, so ideograms and like all the numbers and all these other things. And so how did those people communicate um, and how did they, um, you know, sort of shape their ideas, transmit their ideas? How did they develop culture? Like how did they develop ideas that actually passed on from generation to generation? Um, and, and they were and they were by definition oral cultures. Right. The, 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 the one thing that they could do was, was was speak. And so the the entire culture was built around this kind of this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, oral foundation um and then you know later on the it's interesting like the greeks i think uh, sort of uh, were one of the inventors of, of of writing but then they actually continued a largely oral culture for the next few hundred years um and then you know kind of literary culture developed you know the, the actually christianity the bible you know was a big mm-hmm. part of it and then right, the you know printing started- press. yeah sure right right exactly and then the printing the printing press kind of kicked it into gear like for real right because the printing the printing press lets you move from a very small number of people who could literally hand copy out books who were called scribes to a world where you could have mass production. And, and right, the thing that was, <laughs> the very first thing that was mass produced was the Bible. The very second thing was uh, uh, scandal sheet newspapers, yeah. um. <laughs> <laughs> fake, fake, fake news media, um, li- literally scandal sheets in and around the Vatican, um, spreading all kinds of scurrilous rumors. Um, and then, you know, the enlightenment basically, right? Like in the 1700s, you know, around there, the enlightenment basically was like, okay, now we have this basically technology for literary idea transmission um and so now we're going to write everything down we're going to like also do the same thing with numbers we're going to like have mathematics we're going to all of a sudden have like and all of a sudden like all of the like big debates are going to happen like through the written word right we're going to have all these like you know manifestos and we're going to have like you know the american constitution and like you know these things are all we're going to you know philo- philosophy as we we understand it now right Is distinct right. from religion which is you know basically through through process of writing um and so then we moved into this world where we have a literate culture and the thing about this change, at least the way the theory goes, is the thing around this change is that if you think about it like an oral culture, like pre-rational is not quite the right term, but it's like the focus is not rationality or logic. The focus is on uh, interpersonal interactions, right? relationships, um, yeah. Relationships, right. So oral cultures in, in the theory, oral cultures are social in nature. Uh, they're emotional in nature. Um, they have to do with right around uh, human relationships. Um, they have to do, they're, they're very family-centric, tribal-centric, um, you know, they're very focused on establishing, you know, very strong bonds, you know, between family members or tribe members. They're very focused, you know, for, for a very long time, by the way, they were all inherently, inherently religious, like for a very long time, basically, mm-hmm. families and, and tribes both essentially were, were religious cults um, to be, and the, and the religious cult was, was basically the, 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 the sort of, the idea of the community as encoded into its traditions transmitted orally. Um, basically ended up ended up ended up in the form of a cult you know it passed past through generational lines um, and so and, and of course what did what what didn't they have right they didn't, you know they didn't they didn't have like almost everything today that we would we would think of as like science uh or mm-hmm. rationality or you know basically like or like let's say abstraction right they didn't really yeah. they, they didn't really have abstract concepts cuz like how would you like even if you thought of an abstract concept how would you ever possibly communicate it um, and so basically, it's like, okay, human civilization then is like an oral culture up until I call it the Gutenberg and the Enlightenment. Uh, then, you know, in the West, it, you, know, in, 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 you know, in various places, various times, we become, you know, in theory, literate cultures. You know, but of course, the oral culture doesn't die. Right. And the oral culture kind Even of Even in the out. West, it c- continues. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And by the way, right, what is sort of a classic expression of oral culture is music. Right. And mm-hmm. it's like, so it's like, why is there music and why is there music with lyrics? Right, and mm-hmm. if you think about it, like if you go back, like over the last few thousand years, it's basically because what they could do was they could. The only way to get information reliably from generation to generation was to encode it in the form of a poem, uh, right. or in the right, form yeah. of a story, right, or in form right. of musical lyrics, right, like in a poem or proverbs or all those things, right, Were, were yeah, memorizable, exactly. right. Yeah. And there's there's actually all this research about how basically like they they use like the structure of like poems kind of through the like the you know around the Greek time or even. Like uh, you know, sort of uh, later on, it's like you know, there's uses like very dense information packing. It's like they're optimally mm-hmm. structured for like right. maximum informa- maximum information <laughs> per line, because like yeah. you, you just like the, the odds of it getting through, right? were just not that high, and so you 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 had to really focus on distilling mm-hmm. it out. It's such an awesome amount of wisdom in, in some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. Is it's all hmm. you know? It's this, this idea of the Lind- the Lindy thing. is like the things that last, hmm. and it's like what whatever. Whatever songs or poems or you know um, you know sort of epic poetry like whatever survived was kind of by definition the best of what those people had to offer because right, it was the stuff that, that they remembered. <laughs> yeah, and it was important enough Amazing. to pass down to their kids right across yeah. you know dozens or even hundreds of generations. Um, so anyway, but but like oral culture continues, and of course oral culture is like you know conspiracy culture. Right, Because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, like how do we explain what's happened in the world? We can't deal with the abstractions. And so we need to come up with, you know, basically, you know, these social kind of theories, which, which are sort of the form of conspiracies. So anyway, it's like, okay, we had oral culture, then we had literate culture. And then it's like, okay, does the internet and social media, right? And, you know, for that matter, things like Clubhouse, like, are they a continuation of like literary culture or are they a return to oral culture, right? And by the way, here we are talking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so what we're doing here is, you know, very similar to although, what our
2: although in this case we're talking about books. So <laughs> <laughs>
1: we, we, we are. Well, so it's actually funny. So I'll I'll just tell one more little story on this and then get your reaction. So uh, Socrates, right, who's like you know one of the smartest people who ever lived, uh, Socrates actually hated writing. Uh, there's a famous thing that he did in one of his things. So so Socrates actually never wrote anything down, he only ever spoke, and, and that's why it's all uh, what right. we know about Plato, his, yeah. Plato, right? Plato wrote everything else down. Um, and so literally, it's like Socrates refused to write a thing down on principle. And then there was this like Plato kid following him around, mm-hmm. right, in Athens, like scribbling all this yeah. shit down. And Socrates is like, okay. Yeah, but he like was that,
2: anti-writing, right? Socrates was anti-writing because he thought it messed up your memory. He thought that's, right, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah.
1: He said, look, he said, look, everything that's important, <laughs> right, is something that yeah. you should be like. Well, so one of the famous things he said, one of the famous things he said, was he said, look, the problem with writing is it doesn't talk back. Yeah. Right, like, and so it doesn't matter how often you read something; you're never going to get anything different, right? Whereas when you like talk to somebody, you have a chance. You know, you he had the 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 dialectic. When you talk to somebody, you have the opportunity to actually gain new knowledge, right? Because you you can actually stress test each other. And so he he was actually he he shed all over he should all over writing. Um, <laughs> he was like the original Luddite, He's like that new writing yeah. technology sucks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, anyway, like the theory, and this is from Antonio, but the theory basically, the theory would be basically the internet is sort of paradoxically essentially shoving us back or forward into a new oral culture, um, Mm -hmm. which is why it's so rife with all of this, you know, crazy, you know, whatever you wanna call it, conspiracies, misinformation, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of, um, and I would say, right, for good and for bad, maybe, right, which is just like all, let's just say, all kinds of wildly creative thinking and expression that would never make its way into a book right? Yeah. Or into a, you know, whatever, a, you know, at least a classic version of a magazine or a newspaper. Yeah. Um, but all of a sudden, just like people are able to, talk, and literally what's happening is people are, people are talking about it. And so the theory basically would be like, we're, we're headed actually back into what is actually a much more oral culture um, and, and, and for better or for worse. So yeah, that, that,
2: that's an amazingly interesting take on that question. <laughs> and I think I think it's right. It's interesting, though. The, you know, the the other thing I was going to bring up is, um, and you uh, mentioned Marshall McLuhan, but um, the medium is the message. Right. And it is, you know, one of the things about the different formats, you know, be it kind of the very short form text on Twitter versus the longer text on uh, Facebook versus the you know longer text on Medium or Substack um, versus. Clubhouse versus Zoom, it, it is, the ideas uh, that you can get across are all very, very different. And like one of the things that's been amazing on Clubhouse is listen. <laughs> it's absent on Twitter and it's mostly absent on other things. You know, there's kind of our conversation, I would say. Listening and adding to the knowledge is, um, you know, the kind of additive knowledge through conversation is not something that happens on the other uh, social networks, or at least not for me. Um, yeah, and so this th- this has been a real breakthrough on Clubhouse, I think. Uh, and so it's exciting to see where it goes, but um, it's certainly oral.
1: <laughs> so but Ben, I'd be
2: curi- more like Socrates.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we, we we definitely need the Socrates at Clubhouse. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, unless it's like wing nut, you know, maybe, 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 maybe that's Elon. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, the, I guess the question, the question I'd ask you, Ben is like, how do you, cause I know you, you, you know, you think a lot about music, um, like how, and and sort of music, not just as like a form of entertainment, but like as a mechanism of, I think you'd, you'd say like cultural transmission. Um, yeah, no, and for it, sure. it, it, yeah. And so like, how, how would you think about like the role of music at, like, it, you know, in this framework?
2: Well, it's interesting because, you know, music is, um, Uh, And when you kind of spend time with musicians, like the thing that they're always after is the feeling, like how Mm -hmm. do they translate the feeling um, and the meaning of the feeling uh, into kind of a a work of art. And, and, you know, often like the huge challenge is, how do you like create a new feeling or like um, or correspond, you know, kind of anchor in a feeling that you have. And, uh, which goes very much, you know, like, it, it's not surprising that it's, it's it's part of oral culture in that sense. And so I think that, and then, then in that way, it kind of always um, tries to both drive as well as represent the culture that it comes from and that it, um, you know, either of the time period or the locale or, or what have you. Um, <clears throat> but it is also like dramatically affected by social media because people are going for shorter and shorter feelings <laughs> in music, I would say. Uh you know, is one of the kind of weird kind of challenges that goes on because people want, okay, I want that feeling for this five minutes. Um, but it's not like, you know, when we were kids, we'd listen to albums over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, and, and get very attached to them because they would kind of bring us to literally a place a time and a set of friends that, uh, that we couldn't otherwise get to.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, for people who are into this topic, um, two books I'd recommend. So one, as I mentioned, Walter Ong, uh, his book was called Orality and Literacy. Um, and it is available on Amazon. And then there's another book that came out. That's an extraordinary book, by the way, um, by an anthropologist named Joseph Henrich. Spelled H E N R I C H. And he just wrote this book called uh, WEIRD, W E I R D, W E I R D, and which is That's a, great great just, it's a, it's a great name. It's a great name. And so, and WEIRD is an acronym. Uh, WEIRD is an acronym for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. Um, <laughs> and it's this, it's a great book. It's this, it's sort of this takedown of basically the entire field of psychology uh, on the basis of like the Western psychology basically has only been studying basically undergrads at Western colleges. As their test subjects for like the last hundred years, um, and the, those are like the most uncharacteristic people in the world, um, as compared to like everybody else. Yeah, um, and actually, huh. it's, which is a whole topic. But anyway, the point—the the, point—the point, the point of bringing it up is the first cha- chapter actually opens on this topic of oral versus literate, and he actually goes into the science. And I, I was not aware of this. It's, a, it's an, it's an incredible—he uh, uh, gives an incredible explanation um, when people in a society um, become literate um, their brains physically change. Um, and mm-hmm. what happens, he says, is that you need basically more, you know, neurological processing to deal with written language. Um, mm-hmm. and so what happens is your brain expands its ability to interpret basically, uh, symbols. Um, and in the process, yeah. it steps on the part of the brain that interprets faces.
2: <laughs> well, and that goes together, right? Like, you know, the, uh, it screws up the whole relationship culture. If you don't, remember anybody's name because you don't recognize their face it screws it all up that that, makes a lot of
1: sense yeah exactly and of course you know there are people by the way i I haven't been there are people who literally have this you know thing called you know face blindness um, uh yeah you know where they they literally literally can't tell the difference they literally can't you know i've actually had this happen where like i literally don't recognize somebody i met two minutes ago right and it's just (laughs) like And it was just like, you know, for a long time, I was just like, okay, I'm just like, something's like, I'm just confused or something. And it's like, oh, this is actually a thing. Um, but anyway, um, uh, you know, this is actually like a real, there's actually a real thing in the brain. Like there's a section of the brain that is devoted to basically interpreting faces. And that is the section of the brain that like deals with, you know, basically how to, but it's not, it's not just recognition. It's also like, how do you interpret emotion? Right. Um, right. how do you do bonding and have relationships and know when somebody's upset? Um, and so anyway, it's it's, it's interesting because like it's an actual physical change in the brain and it's a non, uh, it's not a change in the DNA. Um, it's a change in the, uh, in the actual physical structure. Uh, so it's a, it's a
2: neuroplasticity, but it's probably,
1: yeah. but it's heritable. Yes. So he, yeah. this is the thing that freaked me out is he says it's heritable. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And so Makes I, I got to say, I. I'm not enough of a neurologist to understand this, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a neurological change. It's inheritable despite being not genetic, and at least in theory, like if it's not genetic, at least in theory, presumably this means like if you know there was like a nuclear war or something, and we we reverted entirely to orality, you know, presumably our over time you we'd know, back, <laughs> our brains would go back. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, justifiably so, because they would need they would need that skill. Um, yeah. So anyway, all right, that's enough on right, that so. topic. Yes. Um, okay, let's see. Let's go to, let's go to these are now let's go to some more personal <laughs> topics, um, or, or more individual level topics. So uh, Gabby Goldberg asks, how do you structure your days and your work in general to avoid burnout? And then related, <laughs> uh, Ishani J. Patel, then starts laughing right off the bat. Um, what does your morning routine look like? And how does it set you up for a successful day? and so well, again, we'll uh, I laugh cuz it presumes that like I avoid burnout
2: <laughs> right <laughs> which i don't think that's true but um I know, like the things that i find i mean there's just general like routine things like wake up drink some water exercise and then you know kind of i like to not do correspondences in the morning like i rather kind of read you know what's ahead of me for the day um and then I find it to be very useful, you know. like, and, and you and I are really lucky in that we're able to do the thing that we like doing the best, which is, you know, meeting people who want to change the world and learning about new, their new ideas. I mean, like, and then like helping them do that. I, I can't even imagine doing any other job. <laughs> like, I would definitely retire if, if you kick me out of the firm, or if I kick you out of like it. So. Getting back in touch with that, like why I am excited about it, and um, I usually go through my calendar and I ask myself that question: like, why am I excited about this meeting? Why am I excited about that meeting? And by the way, if I'm not, I cancel it. Yeah, <laughs> because you know, it obviously, is they don't need me for it at that point. So, uh, <laughs> in fact,
1: you might be counterproductive.
2: <laughs> no, exactly, because I'm just going to be angry and and get us a bad reputation and a, a, a negative score on some system. Right.
1: Yeah, what what about you? How do you keep getting yes. burnt out? Yeah, so um, so I've had kind of two modes of operation in my life, and you know this firm has kind of kicked me from one end to the second. So for for a long time, I would say I would describe it as just sort of pure fury.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so like to prove uh, yourself. Yeah, no, like the chip yeah. on my shoulder. So- that's been a challenge for me. Is like, you know, I don't have nearly the chip on my shoulder that I once did. Um, yeah. Although
1: you, you've done a better job at maintaining it, I, <laughs> well, I look for mm-hmm. I look for new yeah. motivators. Well, we'll talk about that about that in a second. Yeah. But um, yeah, so like for a long time, like how I worked literally was like wake up in the morning, just like work all. Day. To go to sleep and repeat. And so it wasn't yeah. like it was not it was not structured per se. Um, you know, there's some loose adherence to a calendar, but mostly it was just work all the time. And then when, when there's more time left over, like work some more. Um and so, you know, if you're sufficiently motivated, you can do that for a while and probably maybe you don't want to do that your whole life. Um, you know, with this Firm, I would say. Well, two things. One is this firm, and then you know, obviously having a family, which I, I did, you know, relative, relatively late, late versus versus a lot of people. Is it's like okay, like both this this yeah. firm and this business, and then having a family, like, just simply demands more structure. Um, if you want to, like honestly, if I wanna, <laughs> yeah, you can't just work all day and really bad for family life for all of those young, <laughs> young couples listening. <laughs> <Yes. exactly. laughs> do, do not recommend. And so what I've done actually is a, is a 180. So I wrote this productivity blog post, I think, in 2007. And I basically, it was, I actually sort of lifted it from Arnold Schwarzenegger, who claimed to have this as a technique. And basically, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the idea of not having a calendar. Um so it's this idea that like your day is wide open and then you just like work on whatever's the most important that that day. And you know, this is like what Warren Buffett says he does. Right? He's like Mm -hmm. well, actually Warren Buffett says he does this. He's like Warren Buffett's thing is like, look, if you call me up and you're like, hey, let's get together next Thursday, you know, my answer is no, like I I don't book things like in advance. But like, you know, if you do find yourself in Omaha next Thursday, give me a call. And you know, you know, when you're when you're Warren Buffett, you can do that. When you're Schwarzenegger, you can do that. Um, And so, like, I I was sort of like trying to push it as far as I could in the other direction. But like, you know, in this job, like basically what I've done is a total 180. And so now I've gone to like total structure. Um, And this goes to the burnout question. So it's like, okay, how could you use total structure not to just drive yourself crazy, but to avoid burnout? Um, and the, the thing that a friend of mine told me, the thing, the thing to basically do is schedule mm. all the stuff that you like to do first. <laughs> interesting. Right? So I, I it was, would look, think it'd be right, the opposite, so look, but right. that's, that, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, so this is the thing. This is the psychological yeah. thing. This is the, this is a friend of mine is the psychiatrist. So he, he said, look, he said the, the, the thing that people have, he's like, well, look, he, look, there's, there's some people who just like, you know, are, are on a schedule their whole lives. Right. And, you know, a lot of athletes yeah. are like this, um, you know, and they just like naturally follow a schedule. And if it wasn't written down, they would follow it anyway. And they you know, these are the same people who like balance their checkbook. Right. Um, and and so some people that, but like for the rest of us, including me, like that doesn't happen naturally. And so, and and so basically what happens is people realize they don't have enough control over their lives and and things are slipping away. And so they're like, okay, I'm going to now get organized. Right. Um, and I'm going to have a a schedule. And so they, you know, create a calendar and then they, they, they put in the calendar, all of the stuff that they have to do. Right. And, and then now they look at that thing and it's like a rock, right. You know, hanging. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Right. And then you get, yeah. Then your, your whole day is wrecked. You get to bad state. Yeah. It's like this every day. And maybe, you know, Uh I've had this experience. I'm sure you have like every, you know, it's just, you wake up in the morning. It's the opposite of what you said. Instead of waking up in the morning and looking at your calendar and getting excited, it's looking at your calendar and being like, Oh my God, like what have I done? Right. Um, (laughs) I'm ruining my life. I hate my life. I want to skip. Yeah. Well, and there's actually, there's actually this thing that actually sleep scientists actually say there's this thing called the revenge effect where, and I, I've had this in the past where literally what happens is you're doing things all day long that you have to do. And then you basically go home at night and you're like, finally, I have time for myself. And then basically what happens is you stay up too late, basically, basically inflicting revenge on yourself, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> and specifically inflicting revenge on the person who tomorrow morning is going to have to wake up and do it again. Right. Um <laughs> Right. And so, and you just like, you know, the idea of going to bed just like makes you mad. And so you don't do it. And then, and then you, you you know, you, then your, your health starts to suffer. It's, it's a, it's a lot of professionals end up with sleep disorders in part because of this. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, like that's, bad. that's dysfunctional. Mm. And so that's, that's mm. why he says, basically you flip it. And so what you do is you, you open up the calendar and, you know, you start from scratch. If you're, you're like mm. doing, taking this seriously, and then you block out all the stuff you want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, here's the time I'm going to spend with my family, but you know, whatever spouse, kids, dot, dot, dot. Here's the time I'm Mm -hmm. going to spend by myself. Here's my, here's my, I want to watch TV at night. Here's my hour to be able to watch TV. I want to play Xbox. I want to go on a walk. I want to, you know, whatever I want to zone out. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to have time that's not scheduled. (laughs) Right. And it's just like, boom, 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 boom. Like those things go on the calendar. Right. And then those things are as important as everything else. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's such an important point um, about all of this is people get into feeling guilty about the dumbest shit. I feel guilty if I don't take every meeting somebody asks for, right. Or like, you know, but, but what the organization needs from you is they need the energy. They need the, like the positivity. They need the sharp thinking. They don't need you to like drag your ass through it. 30 meetings in a row that you don't want to go to. And, right. you know, people get that mixed up in their mind all the time. And it's particularly, you know, like if you're a CEO, because look you, you hired all these people, they want to meet with you. You've got customers, they want to talk to you and so forth. And it's, you know, how can you say no to that? Um, but you got to say no to that because they, they don't want that you, <laughs> you, right. you know, they they, they,
1: they, they want the good you. Well, and specifically like where this heads, right, is that you will okay. be like bleary eyed, like unhappy, you know, yeah. hungover, sleep deprived, <laughs> <laughs> overweight, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, diabetic, like yeah. unhealthy. Right. This, yes. is what, this is why this is probably why everybody used to smoke. Um, yeah. Right. Because it's like the one thing they could do, that they had control over. Um and so, yeah, exactly. And then, like, yeah, you get in the meeting, and somebody's in a foul mood, and it's like it doesn't have to do with the meeting. It's just that that is meeting number, you know, twenty eight for the day. And you yeah, know, yep, 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 yep. No, definitely, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so it's it's the it's the direction of energy, right? And then and then basically, like my friend says, look, you know, there are no free lunches, and so you've got the twenty four hours in the in, in the day, seven days of the week, and so you fill in all the stuff you want to do, right? And then you fill in all the stuff you have to do. Right. And then, you know, you probably yeah. have, you know, at that point, 15 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. Mm-hmm. And so then you need to start prioritizing. Right. But then, and then you basically want to prioritize on both sides. Right. So you want, want to yeah. like really focus in on, I'll oh, give you an example. Like, I, you know, I like working out and I like watching TV. Okay. Like those are going to happen together. Right. Yeah. And so like, you know, yeah. during the week, I'm just not going to wa- yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just not going to watch TV where I'm not on the treadmill. You know, no. like that, that, that's just a trade-off I have to make because it just literally doesn't fit. Or or to your point, that the trade-off at work, which is like I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna take that, I'm not gonna take that. Yeah, I'm just I'm not gonna take that 14th call. Um, no. you know, there, there there is a limit on how much I can do. Um, and then this made me sound incredibly productive and functional. So let me compromise that by saying my morning routine, my morning routine is what I call hot docking. Um, and Ben, you you've been the recipient of this many times, mm-hmm. which is my morning routine is the opposite of the get up two hours ahead and like you said, yeah. like you know, drink some water and meditate and review. Your, like I don't do any of that. Um, he <laughs> just walk right into the meeting. Yes, I, I and, and by the way, work from home <laughs> <laughs> has been. I've had to watch this because it's been getting it gets a little crazy. But like literally, it's yeah. like oh, my first call. You know, my first calls at, at at eight a.m. My the alarm is set for seven fifty eight. That's so a roll out of bed, slap the headphones in and off we go. Um, yeah. So that's the other side. Okay. Uh, three more to go. So Dave R. Watson asks, do you believe in gut instinct? And if so, can you give an example of when you've used it successfully?
2: Yes. Um, well, it, it's interesting because there's, there's like a scientific um, kind of uh, explanation where there are, a gigantic number of brain cells in your gut. So your, your gut is actually like fairly smart at doing certain things. Although I think it's mainly at like controlling digestion and things like that. But, um, the, the way I would describe kind of gut instinct in terms of, um, you know, particularly if you have a job leading an organization, uh, a lot of it comes down to you're synthesizing all this information from many, many, many places. And, um, And it all kind of accumulates in your nervous system ultimately as a feeling. Um, And, you know, when when I was CEO, like like CEO of a struggling company, if there was something wrong in the company, I would get physically ill. I'm like, if there's something really wrong, like I would automatically get physically ill. I knew there was something wrong in the company. I could just feel it. It was that kind of bad. It gets so tied to your nervous system. And kind of the one time that I actually remember the most actually was a conversation between you, you and I had Mark over, <laughs> it was a long conversation, but we got an offer to buy Opsware um, for like a little over $4 a share, I think. And at the time yep. I, <laughs> look, we had been through so much, like it would have been like a nice, you know, a nice, like get out of jail free card, almost kind of thing. Yep. But I knew like, I I could feel like where we were in the market, what was going on and so forth. And I knew that was like just too low a price to sell it for. Um, but I couldn't, I literally couldn't articulate why. And I remember we had like six conversations about it, um, but I knew I was like, now nah, we're not going to sell it. We're not even going to entertain that one um, because I know it's wrong. And le- that was, you know, getting back to the co-founder thing. The fact that you had enough trust in my knowledge to not make me articulate it, like got us to right. whatever 14 and a quarter a share, which is what we ultimately sold it for. But that was 100% a good feeling in that I couldn't articulate
1: it, which is kind of a, a little bit, I think, my definition of that. Yeah, so that's, yeah. So, yeah, so I think the key word in what you said is synthesis, um, in my yeah. view, um, yeah. which is basically like, gut instinct when it's useful it's the result of the fact that you have spent you know just an enormous amount of time right ingesting information yeah. right and so and this is why like it's right. you know, been talking about when you're ceo but like you know when you're ceo you're talking to people all the time about, about the state of the company and you have this like composite view that forms right yeah. This is the result of like a thousand conversations and like a thousand pieces of information and yeah. like you know to your point like maybe with a gun to your head or something you could like diagram it all the way out but like at the end of the day it's the summation um yeah. of, of, of all of this information so so I think that that's a really big deal, right? And 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 so like you know, for people who for people who put that level of work in understanding something, like I, you know, their their instincts can often be quite good. Um, um, what I see, um, and this is something I try to guard against in myself, I, I don't know how successfully, but I'm trying to. What what I see is people who are really good at that, who really have that dialed in for the first call at 10 or 15 years of their career. Mm-hmm. Um and and it's just because like it's actually the earlier earlier conversation we're having it's it's like they're working around the clock they're talking yeah. to everybody they understand everything, right? Yeah. You can ask them like any question about the field you can ask them any question about their company, um, you, you know anything about the technology like they understand all of it because they're absorbing all this information right and they're and they're making these gut calls and they, and these gut calls you know they're not always right but they're often right and you know yeah, often yeah. you talk yeah. to successful people and they they will they will credit a lot of this to. To those things, and then what happens at some point is they just like they stop doing all that work. (laughs) And (laughs) they still use data, but they believe they can still do it. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so now instead of you know having the decision based on a thousand conversations or a thousand pieces of data, it's based on three hundred. Right, and then you know before (laughs) long, or three. (laughs) Right, exactly. Right. And then, you know, and this corresponds with, you know, the reason this is so like, you know, kind of deceptive when it happens is, you know, this is kind of when people are at their most successful, right? And so this is when like people have had this like amazing run in a lot of cases. And everybody trusts them. Yeah. Yes. Everybody trusts them. Everybody talks about how smart they are. Everybody's complimenting them all the time. You know, they've, you know, if it's a tech or business, they've made money and then it's like, okay, now they've got hobbies, you know, now they've got, you know, they're, you know, they're taking a lot more, you know, personal trips and they're, you know, out of the office and, and you know they're just not like there's not they've just advanced beyond like just that sheer level of work um, yeah. And, yeah, and then they, they're still making the gut calls and they' and now now they, now they just they literally have no foundation whatsoever for the gut calls and they, and they don't even know it
2: yeah, well, it's funny because when we th- this was one of the most challenging parts of um starting the firm is that there were some things that I had done a lot of work on, or you know like well, the first investment I made was um, or the first you know that I went on the board of was Okta, of course. And that was something that I knew for 20 years I knew that category. Like I, I I'd been working on it forever, you know, since we did LDAP at Netscape. <laughs> and so like right. it, it was the easiest investment choice ever for me. And then, you know, I you know, I know people well enough. I, I really like Todd and Freddie. But you know, that one was too easy. <laughs> And so over time, you know, I would say almost every mistake I made in venture capital is exactly what you're saying, which is I didn't have the knowledge I thought I had. And so I had to kind of rebuild the discipline to go, you know, know enough about things to to make an investment or to not like screw up an investment that somebody else was going to make where they had done the work like that. That was a relearning for me um, after, you know, and as you say, like success is your worst enemy. As soon as you start thinking. You're Successful because of you, as
1: opposed to the exact things that you did, plus a right. lot of
2: luck, then you yeah. totally ruin yourself, yeah.
1: Yeah, Ben'll recall we had this uh, we had uh, we had this discussion with Jeff Bezos when we were first starting starting the venture firm. And wow. you, you can tell the story, Ben. Do you, do you recall the conversation with Jeff um, on uh, um, talking
2: about why we went go build another company that, yeah, exactly. That one, exactly. That one? one. Yeah, 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 that one, yeah. So, Jeff Jeff says, Well, I'll. I, you know, I'd like to invest in you guys in your venture capital firm, but why aren't you going to just like quit and go start another company? Like you can obviously do that. And you're like super successful entrepreneurs. And I said to Jeff, I said, Jeff, if you, for whatever reason, like sold Amazon or, or retired, would you go and like start another company and be CEO? He's like, absolutely not. <laughs> and he said, well, why not? And he said, look, I'd love the fourth grade, but I'm not going back to the fourth grade, <laughs> right? And it's, you know, you don't want to live your same life over again. It was was such a funny moment
1: with him. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's that that problem. Um, Okay. uh, Second to the last question, penultimate question. Um, Ash RO asks, what do you suggest to those who will be going to college now um, so that they can be future proof, um, innovate in futuristic technologies, not just bytes, but also biotech energy, et cetera. And so, and let's like, Let's double underline there i think the, the this sort of future proof concept like how do you what can you get out of college or how do you think about college or skills acquisition at that age such that it's still going to be relevant you know and and is useful to you 10 20 30 years down the road as you either go into different fields or as the actual you know as the topics themselves change yeah so
2: i you know i'll go back i i I've, uh, i think i've said this many times in the past but the most important thing in college by far is learning how to think and, um, and j- just learning how to think and becoming more sophisticated about, you know, understanding many more ideas, um, you know, what they mean, what their impact is and getting, you know, then the beautiful thing about college is you're with so many people from so many different backgrounds, you can get so many perspectives and then, you know, taking that ability to learn into the future with you. And that's, that's the only way you can future-proof because things are going to be very different. Um I, I also think you know like people think of computer science incorrectly yeah you, you know and part of it has just been well, it's like learn to code and it's like well that's a little bit of it but I would think of com- information science in general as kind of like it's a tool like mathematics um and so it's very useful because you can apply it to so many things and the principles are applied to so many things and so you you know you should think about learning things Um, That are in that class that are tools that you can apply to every field. Um, And certainly, you know, mathematics and computer science can be applied to anything. Uh, And, 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 you know, like with with really interesting new results
1: if they haven't been applied before. So that kind of thing is also very valuable. Yeah. So yeah. So and the, the, yeah, people may know this is one of the reasons why I was confident in writing this this essay called "Software Eats the World" um, almost, almost ten years I think ten years ago now. Yeah. And yeah. Why, why I was why I was kind of so confident pegging things on software and it's it's literally this process of like, well, I, we just saw it with the Moderna vaccine as an example, right? So like you know, prior vaccines, like try to develop a vaccine for COVID the old-fashioned way, like you have to get a culture, if you get a sample of the thing, you have to culture it, you have to try to develop a you know sort of a defanged version of it or diluted form of it to turn into a vaccine. You know that's kind of how vaccine developments happen. happening. With the Moderna vaccine, they got they, they literally never had I don't think the live virus early on. They just had the genetic <laughs> – yeah, yeah yeah they they did not they didn't they, they didn't have they it had, in
2: the lab yeah yep exactly so they, <laughs> which they, is a good thing too because it's been known yeah. to escape from the lab <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: especially especially if, yes uh, I'll, I'll stop there um, so um, yeah so what what they got was they got the genetic code which is which is data um emailed to them um and from china and they were able to copy basically i think it's like i'm sure it's more complicated than this but they copy and paste it out of the email right and like put it into their program um that you know drives their manufacturing process and two days later they had the vaccine right and and you know obviously a far more effective vaccine than they would have had the old-fashioned way and so it's like you know that process you know it's just an example of like a lot of biological science now it's this very interesting intersection of computer science and engineering on the one hand with kind of, you know, wet, you know, kind of classical wet biology on the other hand. Um, And so, you know, and this, this, this is leading towards a future of basically like, you know, vaccine, you know, vaccine development and therapeutic development literally happening on laptops, right. Which is like a, which is, you know, which is just like an incredibly wild concept, right. To be able to, you know, CRISPR, the ability to be able to program genetics, you know, synthetic, synthetic biology. And so you've got this thing where all of a sudden, like computer science is this lever into this whole other field. Um, and so and the same thing is true in material science, the same thing is true in, you know, in, in increasingly in chemistry, like there, there's, there's all these different, you know, economics, um, all these other fields, um, even, by the way, like analysis of even in the humanities, like analysis of music or analysis of language, it's increasingly computational. Um, and so I, I, I do feel like we have this kind of magic, <laughs> I sometimes call it, it's like alchemy, like almost yeah. philosopher's stone. Right, the yeah. legend of the philosopher's Stone was this thing that ter- turns lead into gold and we never <laughs> we never found that but we did find this thing that basically turns code into things that happen in the real world um or you know and like quite literally like ideas that you type into a computer yeah. that like pop out the other end in the form of a ve- of like a vaccine. Um, and so like i I think like that's gonna be a really good bet uh, across many fields uh, for the next 30 years. Um, yeah, for sure yeah. and you
2: know the mistake we made. We called hmm. it computer science. That was the dumbest right. name ever because right. people think it's tied to the machine. Right. right. Where it's a right. completely abstract set of concepts for describing and understanding the world and changing the world and programming. The world. Right.
1: That's right. That's right. Exactly right. So. So, yeah, exactly that. Um, OK, good. So and then we are at 819. So we're right on track. So let's go to the last question. So our friend, uh, Wakas Ali, um, asks, um, has Mark gotten you, Ben, into trouble because of his sense of humor? What's the key to building the kind of co-founder-partner relationship you both enjoy? And, of course, I have to immediately challenge the question um, and the assumption that my sense of humor has gotten us into more trouble than your sense of humor. <laughs> my sense of humor has definitely please gotten dis- us into trouble as well. But, but well please, you're, dis- you're- please please, discuss I feel
2: like your sense of humor has gotten you into trouble, <laughs> or some, I think maybe my sense of humor has gotten us into trouble, like see the problem with your sense of humor is that it's all like sarcasm and 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 but you've got like a sarcasm poker face, so nobody knows that it's sarcasm <laughs>
1: and and if it's on Twitter, they definitely don't know it's sarcasm. <laughs> definitely, definitely do not know. I can confirm that and, 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 yeah. and yours Ben. Well, and
2: then mine, because my sense of humor always evolves around saying things that are unacceptable to say <laughs> in polite society. And so it's it's just, yes, they're both problematic and they're very, very problematic.
1: Yes, exactly. Um so um, yeah, I, I will just tell you, like, I, I will say, I will say this whenever Ben says something completely inflammatory um, yeah. and it's, um, and it's usually quite funny, but completely inflammatory and there's blowback. My immediate reaction is, oh, thank God it wasn't me. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> it happens. It definitely And I'm just,
1: and I'm literally, I'm literally like so grateful that it's not my fault this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, well, that's a nice thing. Cause you never get mad at me because you're just happy. <laughs> and i and i know i i will do it in the future and then um okay the more serious part of the question though, what's the key to building the kind of co- co-founder partner relationship that we enjoy and what do you think
2: well i mean i think the big thing is that we don't like we care about each other's feelings i guess but not enough to <laughs> prevent us from saying anything <laughs> right and and so i right. like like we're both okay i mean to me the the real key is that we can Argue and hurt each other's feelings a lot, and not um, and not have that affect the relationship at all. Which is, you know, it's a difficult thing to do, and it, it's a trust that you build over a long period of time. But it's the only way you can actually learn from each other is if you challenge each other, and like, not on some whatever bullshit theoretical concept or something, but on like a core, core thing, like then the way you're running the firm is you're fucking the whole thing up and like people aren't communicating correctly and we're going to run right into a wall. Like if, if you can't say that to me, um, then the relationship's just not that valuable because who the hell else is going to say it to me. Right. And that's the, that's the magic of co-founders.
0: Right. And like,
2: you know, and I can, and by the same token, I could tell you like, you know, you're, you're fucking all mad about this thing. And like, you're full of shit. you like, you don't even know what's going on and right. and you have to be able to hear that. Uh, and then, and then we get stronger every day. Um, but if you, like, if you've got a happy relationship or you've got a relationship where you don't like each other, like neither of those work, it's gotta be, you know, it's gotta be where you really, really interact on controversial things that you both have strong feelings about and can get to an answer. Like
1: that's, that's a relationship that's got value. And then I, I had two things, or at least here's, here's how I think about it. So, um, and this is how I advise people when they're they're thinking about having this, you know, kind of partnership or having like a, you know, a, 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 like a founder partnership or something. Um, basically, it's like the way I think about it is it, like the partnership has to be more important to me than being right. And, and what I mean by that is like yeah. there are all these issues that come up um, and there are all these opinions that I have, right? I've got an opinion on everything. I, don't, I always think I know what to do um and like everybody you know you know i love express i god knows i love expressing my opinion so like and i love getting in my way right like i am a you know I'm a, I'm a control freak as much as anybody else and so it's like, and, and by the way, I'm convinced that I'm right, right? Like, Because like, you know, I, I've been, you know, doing this for a long time and I've, you know, made <laughs> And you spend a lot of time talking to yourself and you talk yourself into it. <laughs> I <It> do, <was> exactly <laughs> right. I have a very vigorous debate in my head and I end up agreeing with myself. <laughs> um, and so it's like, I'm right. And so I, you know, I show up and, you know, I, I, I still do. That. I show up in the discussion. It's like, okay, I'm right. I know what to do, but it's like, okay, like what's more important? Like being right, and, and I say being yeah. right because it's, it's the way the, the, light, the lighter way of saying this is what's more important making the decision or the partnership. Um, mm-hmm. but it's easy in the abstract to say, Oh, the other person should make that decision. It's much harder to let the other person make the decision when you know that you're right, yeah, right, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, that's it's, a tricky thing, yeah, yeah, right. And so, it's that feeling of like, I actually know what the right thing to do here is, and he thinks he does, but I actually know, and like, he disagrees with me, and like, I have to get my way because I'm right right and of course what's happening is he, you know you he you know the person is saying like the exact same thing to themselves right yeah, yeah, for the yep. exact same reasons right and i mean and you know and then of course it's in the heat of the moment so who knows who's right you you won't find out until later so so the way i think about it basically is like you, you, the, the, the partnership has to be more important than being right which means basically at least here's here's what i try to do is you have to you have to seek out opportunities opportunities to let the other person be right um and 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 to make the call um, and, and the way I think about it, honestly, is I think about it, it's, it's almost, and it's, I don't mean it like, I don't mean it mechanically like this, but it's a little bit like it's, it's banking trust is how I think about it, which is like, yeah. the more decisions I can let you make, like the more you'll trust me that if I really have a strong point of view, right someday, and if I really put my foot down, mm. right, that it's, that it's not just me being me, but like, this must be at an incredibly unusual level of severity. Um, because you know, there's another thousand times where we were discussing serious topics, and I was like, "Well, look, here's what I think, but let's go with what you think."
2: Yeah, no, I think that um, I think that part's true, definitely too. Um, you do need like a tremendous amount of mutual respect to pull that off, of course, right. because otherwise, it just drives you crazy. Um, well, you, know, you watching can't somebody fuck up the
1: whole company. Yeah, right. Well, that's the thing. You can't right. The thing that would kill that is if you then try to do the accounting right after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, if you try to keep track of the number of times when you defer to the other person and it, it turned out they thought they're right and it turned out they're wrong and you're sitting there, like, two years later and you're like, well, shit, like, that's happened, like, 20 yeah, yeah. times. Like, yeah, yeah. like that, then you're, I think, basically, it's over. Yeah,
2: you, you know, and on, it's funny, and on investment decisions in particular,
1: um, that's the most dangerous shit. Mm-hmm. Right, actually, uh, this is the Annie, Annie Duke book, uh, Thinking Invest, yeah. where She uses the, the yeah. word, uh, she introduces the term resulting. Yeah. Right, which is evaluating decisions after the fact by their outcomes, um, as opposed to the process you put into. Yeah,
2: yeah, and yeah. and making sure that process is right. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that's the. I think that's the. Um, yeah. So I would. I would. I would nominate that as as, as the thing. And I would just say like, it's a, just observing other people. Like that's that's a that's that's a hard thing. Like it's it's hard. It's hard on the ego. Um, you know, we're in this world, like we're all high ego people. And so it is hard on the ego and you have to like, it's a level of commitment to the partnership that has to supersede the ego, which is really hard.
2: Yeah, that's hard. And then just finding somebody who you can deal with at that level, who you can tell who you trust them enough that the number of mistakes that you, they make, you're going to be okay with
1: right and then the final thing i'd say is the thing that ben said earlier which is like you probably won't really know if it's one if it's like an actual like solid partnership until it really goes through serious stress <laughs> right and you, you go you know, like when no you really chance. Go, right when you really yeah. go through the shit like and it's got to be something like really serious like something existential to the company or to the you know to the effort or something you know to, to your lives like you know who yeah, can like I actually, a
2: dot-com like, crash and three right? layoffs and, <laughs> you, you know, Going public with two million dollars
1: in trailing revenue, that type of shit, that kind of stuff, exactly. And so, but now the good news is, like going through the shit, like number one, you 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 discover a lot about the other person, and that that's incredibly illuminating and gives you the foundation. But the other is like, you know, if you go through enough shit together, it's like the new shit you go through just isn't that bad in comparison. Um, yeah, exactly. And so you kind of both get calibrated, and you you both kind of calm down. Um, which is well, also, and like,
2: you also know, like, you know, the thing that happens when things go bad is paranoia, right? Like, it's right. like, okay, are they, you know, is the other person, you know, going to fuck it all up? Are they trying to fuck me? Are they going to ruin my reputation? Are they going to like, you know, all that kind of thing goes through your head. But, you know, if you've been through that, then you know where that comes out. And so that, that and the paranoia is as bad as the actual problem, by the way. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. Okay, fantastic. Benjamin, it is eight twenty-eight 28 p.m. We have nailed the timing. Thank you so much to the all people right, who asked all the questions. Please keep the questions coming, and we will see you all back here um, in exactly six days and 23,
2: 23 hours. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Great questions, and, and thank you so much for listening. Okay, fantastic. Have a great night.